They held each other close, then turned their backs upon the end. The hills that split asunder and the black that ate the skies. The flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned would never be the final sights that fell upon their eyes. A fly upon a wall, the waves, the sea winds, whipped and churned. The city of a thousand years and all that men had learned. The doom consumed it all alike and neither of them turned. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Today's episode is focused pretty much entirely on the television show, but we are of course relating and comparing the books and the TV show, and so this episode does have spoilers for all of the books. If you're looking for a discussion on the show without any spoilers from the books, you can check out our show-only discussion episode. This episode has no spoilers for The Winds of Winter. And even if you are a book reader, you could check out our show-only reviews anyway. Sean has really been on fire lately, making a lot of great guesses, and I gotta tell you what, guys... It, there's nothing like somebody that hasn't read the books to not have preconceived notions and expectations, and that allows him to make really great judgments and perceptions that we miss because we're wrapped up in what happens in the books, and we can't we can't dis- divorce ourselves from that uh, from those ideas. So a really good analyst that's only read or that hasn't read the books actually comes up with a lot of things that are relevant to us show watchers to, to us book readers rather. <laughs> And show watchers, all that yeah. stuff. So, so that's really cool. So I hope you guys check that out also. It's not just for people who have only watched the show, even though that's how it's built. This episode, we have some interesting themes. And again, I got to plug Sean once more. Our mm-hmm. Sean of House Beard came up with the theme that I think is the most prevalent in this episode that I couldn't pick out myself and none of us could pick out either, apparently. And I think it's compromise, accepting hard truths, i.e. kill the boy grow up and face the you know face things as they are and not how you want them to be so pretty excited about that that theme works out really nicely we're going to be discussing that i think there's also a theme of fear of death they mention a lot of people talking about if they're afraid of death that's a theme throughout the show really. I agree. and compromise it's it's particularly brought out here and there's some really <laughs> in some very uh touchy spots as well so <laughs> we'll definitely be touching on that as well we're going to be going uh, to the wall, and then Essos, and then the north. We're going to then do some user questions and predictions. User? I don't know why I said user. Watching her. That's my <laughs> new favorite word for that. <laughs> then we're going to bring back worry of the week, or or the week, which we didn't do last week, even though I mentioned it during the show. <laughs> then we'll have the credits, and after the credits, we're going to discuss the trailer for episode six. Now, if you don't want to avoid discussion of the trailer, all you got to do is stop listening after the credits and you won't get spoiled. But for people who want to discuss those little teasers, well, we've got you covered there too. So just stay tuned until after the credits. Only the fourth time King's Landing hasn't been in a Game of Thrones episode. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Yeah, we looked that up. The other three are the Battle at the Wall, uh, the King's Road episode, which is the second episode of the entire series. Mm. And the other one is the Red Wedding episode, the Reigns of Castamere. So that's it. Yeah, those are just those four. And we have, of course, no Dorne in this episode or no Arya. It looks like both those will be in the next episode. Oh, I just spoiled the trailers. Ha ha. Sorry. That's not a real real spoiler. (laughs) But quick note before we begin, we're we're not going to waste much time. We're going to jump right in. But before we start... Wanted to make sure you all know that A Hymn for Spring is out. It's the Tower of the Hands latest ebook. And it features an essay by Shea and I, who wrote and co-wrote a 10,000-plus word essay on the curse of Heron the Black. It includes history, dissecting of the curse, 
and a lot of other fun stuff. There's also great essays by Stefan Sasa, Stephen Atwell, John Jasmine, and several other Song of Ice and Fire luminaries like Jeff Hartline. I'm not going to name everybody. It's a long list of great mm -hmm. people. And perhaps at some point we'll, we'll talk about some of the essays in that book. But for now, we'll, we'll make, give everyone time to acquire it and read it. You can get it through our website. Go to historyofwestros.com, and there's a link for him to spring on the right side. All right, let's go to the wall and get started. We start off with Maester Eamon and Sam and John. Oh, silly me. Of course, welcome back, Yo Boy from Radio Westeros. <laughs> We're so used to having How you could here you now. Forget? It's, it's like you're part of the team. I know, I just blend in, don't I? Um, I'm really glad to be back uh, to discuss this halfway episode, is it? Episode five? Yeah. And um, really delighted that you've invited me back for more. I'm really up for it today. Right on. Yeah, we are. At, that's a good thing. We're a good thing to point out. We are at the halfway point, and that's when things start to turn from setup to resolution, which tends to mean excitement. So we're right on that cusp of a lot of things probably breaking loose on us. And But it's already exciting, even though we haven't gotten to the most exciting point. Unfortunately, as you all can probably tell, Lady Gwen couldn't make it this week, but we will carry the torch, just the three of us this time. I'm sure we'll do just fine, but we'll miss her, and hopefully she'll be back to round out the team next week. So... Like I said, Maester Eamon and Sam and Eamon and John together as well. We have this line about a Targaryen being alone in the world and, and mm -hmm. John comes in right after yeah. that. Nice nod to R plus L equals J. And it's funny, we, we discussed R plus L equals J with our unsullied people and it's just to kind of get an idea of what people know. We have a friend named Bill who hasn't read the books and we asked him the same question. Do you know who Jon Snow's mother is or his parentage, anything like that? And he also had already been spoiled on that from one of his yeah. just co-workers. Someone just talking about it. Although when he first, it wasn't like, who also it wasn't books. so ingrained in his head that he was able to just say, oh, Lyanna Stone's mother. He was like, Ned had a sibling. And, you know, he was kind of He thinking, was on the track. He was a little tired. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he, he definitely, someone had already talked to him about it, just like a co-worker. So. And that just goes to show how much it's really, we, we talked earlier at the beginning of the season and at other points about what the heck is a spoiler these yeah. days. I mean, obviously you don't want to talk about, it's clear in some cases, like when the leaked episodes were out, it was clearly a spoiler to talk about episode four when it was only yeah. week two. But as far as what fan theories have, perm, uh, have you know, penetrated the fandom, uh, yeah. that one, it just seems so ubiquitous. Uh, Doesn't uh, seem like it is a spoiler to me when major news outlets write about the theory now I, and the creators talk about it. It just, it just doesn't seem like it's a spoiler for show viewers. So some people do think it is. I respect that some people still think of it as a spoiler, but, but from our perspective, I just want to show how hard it is for us to treat it as a spoiler. It's been such a... I mean, literally for me, it's been a theory that has been accepted for... 15 years or more. That's just me, and some people have accepted it for even longer than that. But anyway, the point is that it's really hard to find truly unsullied people, and I think that's interesting. Just because, even in this, even because, even in a niche of fandom like Game of Thrones, it's not becoming a niche anymore. It's so popular and big and, and everywhere. So I, I just think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, something I was wrong about, I was a predicting Eamon would die this episode. They kind of foreshadowed it. He was sick, so yeah. and we kind of figure he's going to die this season because he dies in the books, so that, that seemed like a reasonable guess, but I was definitely wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong about that. More Eamon is a good thing. I like the actor. I like the character. And there's not much... Now we have some hope that he won't get sent to Bravos, which is what killed him in the, in the book. 
Uh, he doesn't have to leave the wall now that Mel is going on campaign. You know, Yoke Boy, what do you what do you think about that? What are your thoughts on Eamon? Oh, one possibility is that Eamon might die when John's away. So then you have kind of Sam and Gilly around him, maybe maybe taking a bit of care of him, which would be reminiscent of the books on the cinnamon wind. Yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense for them to take care of them at the wall. John's gone, John comes back, and things are not looking good. Eamon's dead, so that's like a big supporter gone, and then obviously we have the stabbing. Uh, the stabbing. But uh, <laughs> I also think that, you know, then finding out that Eamon's dead would spur John on then to send Sam to the Citadel. Yeah, the Citadel is the next thing we want to talk about, oh, yeah. and that's, that's something we were all pessimistic about seeing ever on TV, but... This scene gave all of us yeah. new optimism, didn't it? Yeah, I was I, I was already, I think, a bit overly optimistic. I felt like you even had been skeptical, and I was, I, I got my hopes up a little bit about it. Um, and I just love the plotline so much, so of course I want it to happen. But this definitely just made my hopes even greater. And I do think it's possibly just a shout out to the storyline, which they do, you know, like to do, just like when Tyrion says, "Not the Roin." This is not the Roin. <laughs> yeah, they love shout doing that. out. So maybe that's maybe that's the case, but I, I think we're going to get Old Town. Yeah, I, I have to admit, when you mentioned Old Town in a previous episode and you seemed optimistic, I, I was very pessimistic with all the things that they're going to have to cut. I thought, well, Old Town would be one of the first things to go, but maybe not. And there's that scene where Sam actually points out that he wanted to be a maester. And there was just something in the delivery of that line which seemed hintish to me. I don't know if you felt that. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure if that's... I, I did feel that. I wasn't sure if it should be something I should get my hopes up out or not, but... Yeah, But then Sean, <laughs> as you said, made you even more hopeful and that Sean predicted that Sam would maybe be going to Old Town. Yeah, our, to our unsullied co-host thinks that Old Town is going to appear based on this scene and he has no, he hadn't even really heard Old Town. So <laughs> that, that really gave me even more optimism that someone with no expectations even sees it coming. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. I love, uh, I love the lines here. Um, what do you think about the possibility for... Maybe them going to, to Bravos, do you think that oh, could still yeah. happen? I think that having Sam and Gilly come close to interacting or interacting with Arya makes for great TV. I feel like they'd be fools to miss the opportunity to have characters interact again. Whether that could happen in Bravos, they could work in Sam and Gilly stopping there. But they could also have Arya go to Old Town as part of the Faceless Men plot. It's next season. We don't know how far along she's going to be. We don't even know where Arya's plotline is going. So honestly, what Arya could do in the show is really up in the air to me. Yeah, well, I'll just have it's, it's a big wait and see situation. You're right. Where she's at in the books is yeah. So depending she's... on whether you've read the spoiler chapter, even that doesn't necessarily yeah. change the picture from the TV show all that much. I love Gilly's line. Is this every book there is? Yeah. Yeah, I love how she, how she said it, too. That yeah. actress is a great comedian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah, this and, library is small, actually. Yeah, Sam says, no, it's actually small. Yeah, and again, Sam is really kind of shutting her down the last, like, this last few episodes. I guess he's stressed out about studying or something. You know, he's like, it's finals coming up. No, he's just stressed out, but, you know, he loves Gilly, and he presumably wants to teach i guess he just is frustrated because he's tried to teach her and he has trouble teaching her he's not a natural teacher and so he has kind of maybe given up on trying to teach her things yeah it, it uh, seems to be a bit of a common theme him kind of her feeling talked down to when yeah. they have a conversation about learning and knowledge because she again that's what ends up how it goes again she 
Oh, yeah. Oh, I had a sweep. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's real big. Yeah. And then she runs out of the room when Stannis comes in, so the conversation is kind of cut short. I really like this interaction with Sam. Mm -hmm. Stannis brings up Randall Tarly. We get a little history, the defeat of Robert, how it was the only time Robert was defeated. It was interesting to see that much talk of Sam uh, about Randall. Rather, rather, it's possible we'll see him. Maybe I, I, I never really thought good. he would appear. Pretty good new character for next season, I think. Yeah, um, and awesome. then we get talk of Dragonglass and the Children of the Forest, and and Stannis is really just on top of things. I really like the way he's he's doing things, and I'm sure show watchers who are not a fan of Stannis, some of them are being converted. <laughs> What did you think, Yoke Boy? There was a lot, of, a lot of interesting things in the scene, especially some of the uh, the undertones and some of the big mysteries. Yeah, I really like the inclusion of that snippet about Dragonglass, and looking at the books, this information specifically that the the children of the forest hunted with Dragonglass is actually from a discussion between Bran, Rickon, Osha, uh, Osha, and Meister Lewin in game where Lewin gives the kids dragonglass arrowheads. And I've got the passage here. Dragonglass? Osha named it as she sat down beside Lewin, bandages, bandages in hand. Obsidian, Meister Lewin insisted, holding out his wounded arm. Forged in the fires of the gods, far below, below the earth. The children of the forest hunted with that thousands of years ago. And this is the conversation that ends with Rickon asking for four arrowheads because he's four years old <laughs> and Lewin gives them to him, which is quite cute. And this is perhaps the first hint in the books that the children of the forest aren't just kind of fluffy, peaceful beings. It's saying that they hunted. You know, I had a question. Well, I, I, don't, I just don't remember right now. What happens with those arrowheads? Those... Rickons? Yeah. I guess he still has Does them. Does he have them? Good question. That is Seems a good question. Seems like a pretty useful know. thing for him to have if, yeah. he, if him and Osha have it. Very. It could easily have saved them at some point or will. I yeah. mean, four arrowheads. I'm, I'm pretty sure Bran takes oh. some and Rickon. Yeah. So maybe this is check or a Chekhov situation. That's oh, very cool. Yeah, I never thought about that. Again, that's neat. The, the layers are so deep. We're going back to a quote early on in Game of Thrones and mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing how that plays out later, much later in the books that haven't even happened yet. <laughs> never ends, folks. So the end the endlessness of a Game of Thrones never ceases to amaze me. Now, this great this conversation has more excellence in it. Sam starts to say, when they come, and Stannis interrupts him, we have to know how to fight them. Keep reading, Samuel Tarly. I'm pretty sure that line was for us readers. <laughs> Keep reading. We are, we are all Samuel Tarly. Yeah, all your books and you still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag readers. Yeah. So... That's a great line, great scene, great line, a great, lots of hidden information, lots of nods. Now we, we can move on to John and Tormund. We yes. are introduced to Hardhome, which is very interesting. We've heard a lot about Hardhome in the books, and we want to see, it's, it's curious to see how it's going to play out in the show. I'm sure they're going to make some changes to it, but yet uh, we'll have to wait and see what those are going to be. I'm a little concerned that John is going with such a small group. Uh, with a huge group of wildlings and a small group of Night's Watchmen. I mean, do you really need to worry about John if he's going to be coming yeah. back to the wall? Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I shouldn't worry about John. He's already kind of worry toast in some torment. way or another. No. Uh, toast, yeah. <laughs> so in the books, though, it's, it's a good place to look at some parallels so we can get an idea of what's going on at Hard Home in the books to prepare us to catch these parallels and maybe to make a few predictions. What do you think, Yoke Boy? Yeah, I've got some information. Uh, the background from the book's version of Hard Home. Okay, 
In the books, a wildling witch called Mother Mole, who's prophetic, and she has a vision about Hardhome. And Hardhome's a place that the wildlings once suffered very badly, and there's descriptions of a kind of mini-doom scenario there, hundreds of years ago. Perhaps volcanic activity, and the possibility of volcanic activity, might explain the dragonglass in the area, because obviously obsidian is from volcanic rock. But Mother Mole this time predicts that ships will be there for the wildlings to take them south. And she thinks about this with optimism, as if it's going to be some kind of saviour. However, she is kind of right, but not in the way she thinks. It's later revealed that slavers turned up to Hardhome, and them being taken south in her prophetic vision was the slavers taking the wildlings away to be slaves. So this really underlines the treacherous nature of prophecy that we see time and again in the books. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's interesting, too, that she was at least part right. It shows that some of the wildlings at least do have this actual supernatural power, even if, like Melisandre, they screw it up and get it read, read it wrong and all that. But that's a good note. Yeah, Georgia said that prophecies can come true in unexpected ways and that, you know, people's actions feed into making them come true, but perhaps not, not always in the way that they desire, which uh, is, is true of a few of the prophecies. And anyway, John sends Cotter Pike and some ships to Hardhome, but then he gets a letter back. And it, I'm going to read this because it's one of the most creepy moments in dance. At Hardhome, with six ships, wild seas, blackbird lost with all hands, two Liseni ships driven aground on Skane, Telon taken water, very bad here, wildlings eating their own dead, dead things in the woods, bravosi captains will only take women and children on their ships, which women call us slavers. Attempt to take Stormcrow defeated, six crew dead, many wildlings, eight ravens left, dead things in the water, send help by land, seas, racked by storms, from Talon, by hand of Maester Hamun. And it's then that John thinks his real war is beginning, so it's a really big moment in dance, and he plans to range to Hardhome which is where we are at the end of Dance when he is stabbed. So this hard home scene is of absolute terror in the books, and it'll be really interesting to see how that's going to be portrayed on the TV show, whether they can kind of match that dead things everywhere feeling that you get from the TV show. Oh, yeah. yeah, I have a feeling it won't be a letter that John gets. We might get to actually see something. That would be yeah. cool. Uh, I don't think a letter would, would have the same effect on the TV show that it does in the books when we're just reading, reading everything. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't seem like John will get stabbed before he goes to Hardhome in the show. Yeah, it seems like he'll... I don't, I don't know what will happen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. it seems like he'll either get stabbed at Hardhome or when he comes back from Hardhome. But... Yeah, maybe he takes some Night's Watchmen that are, already, that are not feeling... I mean, why would he take, like, Ollie or any of the other people, his detractors with him, like... Everyone, everyone's just a tractor now, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if he goes through with the plan. So now we have uh, Stannis and Davos. Davos wants to wait for the wildlings, but Stannis says, no, the advantage is now. 
And the, in other words, they already have a manpower advantage. They don't need more men. What they need is to take advantage of the fact that Bolton isn't fully ready. He's not, he hasn't fully consolidated his power in the North and the time to strike is now also because of the onset of winter though. It's not just because of the advantage, he, maintaining his current advantage over the Boltons. One thing not brought up in that argument that's an important point that John raises in the book is that if you have wildlings in your army, you are going to get attacked by the Umbers, you're going to get attacked by some other Northmen who hate the, hate the wildlings and it's a bad political move to have wildlings in your army. So they didn't cover that, but it's a good point to bring up. Uh, they didn't, doesn't, Stannis doesn't have to deal with that issue. Uh, the other major difference is bringing his family and Melisandre and Davos on him with campaign, uh, with him on campaign, which has not happened in the book. None of those people go with him. Not not his family, not Melisandre, nor Davos. And we've got some more thoughts on that later. It maybe puts some of these characters at risk, but it also removes the threat to Maester Aemon, as we said. It changes the dynamics with Shireen at the wall. It changes the dynamics of Melisandre and Jon. has a big domino effect. And some of these things might still happen if maybe Melisandre returns to the wall later or something like that. But it's, yeah. a, it's potentially a large change, but we don't know yeah. what they're doing with it. Yeah, I really have no clue. So I guess that's a, there's a lot of wait and see there. It's very, uh, a very big thing to keep an eye on, though. Let's move to the meeting at the mess hall where we see that even Dolores Ed is against John in this decision. And there's just so many people naming names of who's been killed by the wildlings and as their reason why they just can't do this. It's a very deep-set feeling. It's very emotional for them. All this talk of dead friends, we have some comic relief. Yeah, we have Stannis the Grammarian returning, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's the nod to the few fingernails. Yeah, there. yeah, complete with Davos asking him what and pardon, respectively. <laughs> Each time he didn't quite catch what he had to say. <laughs> yeah, just to recap for those that might have missed it, we saw Stannis saying fewer, and this is a reference back to Season 2, Episode 4, where Stannis asks Davos, do your knuckle bones bring you luck? And he replies... Life's been good since you hacked them off, Your Grace, and it's four less fingernails to clean. And Stannis just says, fewer. He doesn't apologise or anything, doesn't show any sympathy or regret. He just says, fewer. And uh, Davos says, pardon? Four fewer fingernails to clean. It's uh, in the spirit of... It's a pedantic version of Stannis, isn't it? I love a... I noticed um, a lot of people, you know, obviously loved that. Um, I saw a lot of people tweeting. I even saw, like, a Twitter recap of everyone who loved Stannis' <laughs> grammar um, correction from Hyperbole, I believe. It was on zap to it They had, like, a collection of all the tweets about it. There was, like, so many tweets of people just, like, super stoked. There was also a group of people that were like, this is the first time I've liked Stannis. And I'm like, he said it in season two, you guys. <laughs> the exact same one. And, like, the exact same thing. And then there was a group of people that were like, and of course Stannis has to, has to fit, has to correct his grammar. Really, Stannis? And this time, you know, like, a lot of people that hate him even more because of that. Which is just nice to see people's opinions. Yeah, I like that. It's really, it's part of, to me, it's it's funny, but it's also part of this kind of rounding out of Stannis' character. We get the scene where he, we get the warmth, where he, you know, he his scene with Shireen. Then we get to see him being funny with the grammar comment. And we see him being a badass and doing, making the right calls. We see him being a good leader with, with talking to Sam and, and getting all the right information. Is this ominous? Is this, <laughs> should we be scared for Stannis? I don't know. But it's, it's part, it seems to be part of all that. 
Now let's talk a little bit more about John and Ollie. Speaking of things that look to be turning dark, it really, as we predicted, and as a lot of people predicted, John and Ollie are not seeing eye to eye anymore, and this is looking like Ollie is going to be part of Team Caesar, giving <laughs> Team Caesar-ish, or et to Ollie, however you want to call it. It looks like he'll be part of the stabbing group. He'll be a, there'll be a dagger in his hand near the end of the season, and John's name will be on it. Yeah. So, Yokwa, what about some other thoughts on how where this is is heading? Well, I just thought it's interesting at this stage to compare TV show Ollie and book Bowen, okay? There is, Bowen Marsh is actually cast in the TV show, but he's bit part, you know, I, I don't know if he's going to play the same role, but Bowen really represents the kind of ill feeling within the Night's Watch. He kind of embodies it, you know, in one person. And his backstory is that he was in a battle at the Bridge of Skulls with the Wildlings. He was taking on the Weeper and he lost men. And, you know, these guys were probably his friends for a long time and he was badly injured. You know, they, they, they hit him hard. So he's a kind of war veteran who's then has to live with the people who he's only just finished warring against. You can... A lot of people aren't sympathetic to Bowen Marsh in the books, but I am. I think I can see his point of view, you know, even though I might not have liked what he did. I think you can really see he's got a point. He's not an all-out evil guy. He has got a kind of rational yeah. agenda, right? He's not a complete baddie. And in the same way, Ollie's got a similar beef. He, he's He's even worse, really. He's seen his family and his village trashed by... It was the Thens, wasn't it? Yeah, they and they were saying all kinds of things that they were going to eat them, as far as I remember. So those two, uh, I'd be looking for more comparisons between them two. I think in the books, Bowen is more complicated. He actually has more beef with John than Ollie's going to. I think it's going to be very simple with Ollie. He's lost people, and he will not take kindly to living among the wildlings. Whereas Bowen, it was issues such as leathers being promoted and, you know, other politics that was going on. It was more of a build-up. I think it would be more straightforward with Ollie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone asked me if they thought that Ollie would possibly be tricked into betraying John, and I couldn't really think of any other Night's Watchmen who could do so, you know, other than there's um, that, I guess his name is Awful Yarwick, uh, who gave that less enemy speech that Stan is correct, or that's that guy, um... And I guess he could influence Ollie in some way. I definitely think... I don't think Ollie's just going to spearhead this this trail. You know, I don't think he's the leader among all the Night's Watchmen. They're going to follow him to go kill John. So I do think there's going to be some other ringleader of it. Uh, do you think Ollie will be used? Is that what you're saying? O Ollie is going to be used? I think... I don't know if it'll be... I don't know if it'll be used. I think it's what he will want. I, I do think that someone is going to influence him to do it, though. I don't think it's just Ollie, of his own volition, like, rallying the men to do that. Seems like the obvious pick is Alistair Thorne, just because of the lack of other candidates. Well, there's... You know. Oh, the only other one I said, there's that Yarwick. Right, oh, I meant besides yeah. that. Yeah, you mentioned him. I oh, just mean yeah. remaining candidates. Just those candidates. two, I mean, I, I, there just aren't any other... Like, it's not like, like there's Dolorous Ed. I just don't think he would do that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't... That would be even more tragic. I guess yeah, it's got to consider impossible, but I have to agree yeah. that seems very, very unlikely. 
They're really the only three Night's Watchmen and other ones we really know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, again, that's one thing that sometimes it makes things easy to predict in the show because there's just so few candidates to, to do things. Like, just like we predicted who would become the new leader of the Wildlings, effectively, uh. because of who else is there? <laughs> you know, it, had, Tormund, it had to be Tormund. There wasn't, you know, <laughs> another option, really. Uh, so let's talk about, real quick, before Stannis marches, we got a scene with Shireen... And the rest of Team Dragonstone, <laughs> Solis and Davos. Yeah, we, we have, have Shireen the historian. Yeah, what is up with her mentioning the Winterfell crypts? That yeah. is interesting. That really stood out to me. Yeah. I have no idea where that's going, but that I is think, that piqued my interest. I think, I think it could be something like Shireen is going to get to the crypts. It could be there's something notable in the crypts, and I or it could just be Sansa was just in the crypts, so they're referencing it again. You know. Yeah. But, I just I think that alone um, is a decent enough reason they put it in there. It's true. It, it could it could be bode well for Stannis supporters. This could be foreshadowing of Stannis taking Winterfell. It, Shireen won't be able to check out the, the crypts of Winterfell unless Stannis takes the castle. Yeah, it could be foreshadowing that she will not check out the crypts of Winterfell because she wants to so badly. Aww. And or it could just be that they were like, Shireen thinks she's going to Winterfell. What would Shireen care about Like when they're writing? They're like, Shireen cares about history. She would be interested. That is a good point. Now, Solis, of course, being extremely joyless and cold and unpleasant yeah. as usual. Nothing <laughs> out of the look. ordinary she there. Really just gives, them a, gives her such a shut down look. Like, you're not allowed to be friends with Gilly. And you're not allowed to talk to Davos about battles and all this. It's just like, geez, can you, have you ever said a nice, pleasant thing? <laughs> <laughs> so, I really like the march out of Castle Black, as I said before. But there's something interesting about it. Something peculiar. And it's... The direction they're marching, it's not south, is it? They're going along, it's like they're going west along the wall. And the King's Road is directly south. That's been established several times. It's not some sort of just thing that the book is doing a little, or the show is doing a little differently. This has already been established. So I don't know that Stannis is heading straight to Winterfell like we're kind of expecting. He might have other ideas. Yoke Boy, what do you think? Do you think there's something else he might have in mind? I have no idea where he'd go if not Winterfell. Yeah, it's not like other locations have been really brought up a lot. That yeah. makes sense. I mean, what, the Dreadfort? Mm -hmm. Well, he considered taking the Dreadfort in the book before John talked him out of it, so I guess that's possible. And are we thinking that the clans, the clansmen won't be uh, coming into play in the TV show? It doesn't seem like it, does it? It, it seem seems like unlikely. It, no casting announcements about anyone like that, Yeah, at least. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, 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 I can't quite remember in the show how they depicted the King's Road in terms of large forces marching out. It wouldn't be so weird to me if, like, they exit Castle Black and they go to the right a little bit and then they go down. I, I, yeah, I mean, maybe a lot of his men were stationed, I, I, stationed just below the wall so they had to group up. I, I, there's a few explanations, yeah, but it, I don't remember what it looked like um, when other troops were marching towards the wall. They might have just yeah, chosen... Yeah, could be reading too much into nothing there. They might have just chosen that because it makes a beautiful shot to see the, you know, the yeah. Yeah, absolutely. parallel with the wall. It could be nothing, but I took note of it and we'll I have to see. I think it'd make a cooler shot to see them marching front, you know, with the wall getting smaller behind them, hmm. you know. That would be cool too, yeah. But it looks Anything cool with the wall in the background yeah. is going to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, Yoke Boy, you had some thoughts on an interesting potential parallel going on with Stannis in terms of war and battle. 
Yeah, well, just looking ahead, nobody knows what what's ahead for Stannis in the books. I mean, you can make good predictions about the uh, the Battle of Ice, and I think that's that one might be a very strong prediction. But as for taking Winterfell, I am not as confident as like everybody else seems to be. I think it'll be more complicated. <laughs> so just thinking about the TV show, I just wondered. Fire, in a way, fire stopped Stannis taking King's Landing, didn't it, with the wildfire? So is it possible that ice could stop him taking Winterfell? And there is there was those mentions of winter coming and heavy snow as well. And it's also interesting to kind of predict what influence Melisandre could have. She was left behind at Blackwater in both the TV show and the books. And so it will be really interesting to see her kind of snowed in, if that's what's happened. Will, with her being an agent of fire, will Mel's powers diminish? Or will her being able to, you know, keep warm? Will that work <laughs> in her favour? How is she going to fare if she is snowed in? What do you think? It's interesting. I, I like this this line of thinking because, like you said, there's there's different things that happen on his campaign without Melisandre. Like we have that scene where there's the cannibalism and they're all snowed in, and they're like, "We need we need a victim. We need to sacrifice somebody to to get the snows to break." Well, they're not going to have the. It's going to be a different situation with that regard because they have Melisandre right there. Whatever they need, if she can't provide it, then I don't know. Will that be a, an act will that test their faith or will that will she just live up to it will she do what's necessarily will she keep them warm somehow with her fiery <laughs> abilities yeah you know, that i thought of um you made an interesting point um this is, isn't quite as directly related to the show but uh when you talk about you know fire stop stannis from taking king's landing we've had our theory about you know the battle of ice how They'll, you know, he'll have a trick on the ice lakes, on, mm -hmm. on those little lakes. Yes. And that would help him to win the battle. So then in, in, our, th in our, I never connected it to fire helping him lose and <laughs> ice helping him win that in the books. Neat. And I, I have no idea if that will happen. It's just a theory. And I have no idea um, if it'll even be remotely similar in the show. But that's an interesting note. There haven't been any hint that there will be a battle of ice this season. But that's something we're going to talk about near the end of this episode. Speaking of the Battle of Ice, of course, we have done a three-part series with Brendan B. Fish, a.k.a. Jeff Hartline. I'm sure most of you are aware of that, but if not, mm -hmm. good, th good time to check that out after this episode. Right now, we're going to go ahead and move on to Essos. So we start with Tyrion and Jorah. We have a great bit of comic relief here with sullen silences and the occasional punch to the face. Yes. The Mormont way. way. <laughs> I, I would love it if we could get... Asha with Asha Yara with uh, Alice Hayne. I'd love to see, you know, I'd love to see her say that about another Mormont, something similar. <laughs> that would be great. I can't ima I imagine there's already people that have made shirts. Oh. And we know there's a million oh. memes that have popped up on that the Mormont way. That's... Yeah, I want to see like a travel poster, you know, for, for Bear Island that says, like, has that, like, very, you know, poster. <laughs> it's amazing the power of this show to create so much impact on social media with a single line. Or... Yeah. And uh, this is this is well demonstrated by by that one. That was my favorite line of the episode for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
So we have Valyria. The, sh the shout out to the Rhine was cool. They yeah. do that kind of thing where they 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 make a big change, but they like to throw a nod to the book readers and say, yeah, "Look, we, we not know the Rhine. we know we changed it. We kind of had to." But here's a little shout out for you guys. Yeah. So, uh, Shay, why don't you start us off? Thoughts on how Valyria looked? Yeah, I was disappointed. Not to say that it didn't look cool, but and, and I mean it did look really cool, and it was thematic and lovely to see Drogon flying over Valyria. But it just isn't my image of Valyria. The Valyria we know of, you know, has a smoking sea. It has like the, the sky's red over it from like what we see. It smells of ash and brimstone, and like they can't get the smell across to us, but they can make it look like that. This this had, like, greenery. It looked lush. And yeah. <laughs> um, it looked like what it is in the books, the sorrows. It looked like it was just the ruins of Croyen. Um And this is what I will pretend, pretend continue to pretend it was. <laughs> I, in my head, they were sailing the Rhoyne. They were at Croyen. I like really that. Good. Yeah, they were sailing the Rhoyne. There we go. But uh, there was the Doom poem. The Doom poem was awesome. Is, of course, you heard us start yeah. the episode with it. That was really good. I, I liked... The balance in the scene, there was that was there was the disappointment of expectations in, in terms of what we expected Valyria to look like. But like you said, it did look cool, despite the fact that it didn't at all look like what we expected. And the poem was cool, Drogon was cool, and the dialogue was cool. So mm -hmm. it was still, despite the the awkwardness and the difference, it was still a good scene. And yeah. it was mostly weird to me because they're talking about it. Like, they've talked about yeah. what Valyria looks like, and they're talking about the smoking sea as they're on the sea, and it's a <laughs> it's small river. not even river. a sea. It's a river. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a small river, even. Yeah. And there was no smoke. Yeah, there, I mean, it was In the fog. next shot, you can see a little bit of fog, but even that yeah. wasn't very much. <laughs> and, and they, yeah, like you said, they've talked about it being destroyed by volcanic activity. Like, there was the History and Lore's videos that... Uh, listener, watching her, John Lanouette said he found us because of those history and lore oh, videos yeah, while searching for those. Our podcast yeah. turned I love up. those so much. They're, they're yeah, really they are great. Really I would love, it just reminds me how much I'd love to see an animated A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> yeah. And so, so they kind of wrote themselves into a corner. And I think this was just the lesser of two retro retroactive changes. They It's either changed the way the Doom looked a little bit, changed Valyria like in a way that they think they can get away with, versus changing all the maps. They've already published maps with where Valyria is and where the Ruin is, so they can't. that would be a bigger cha retro change. So I this mean, was the lesser of the two. They had one other option. They could have had them meet somewhere other than Volantis. Yeah, you're right. That's they, true. They could have just... There's, well, there's a lot of stuff in between Pentas and Volantis. It just wouldn't have ever made much sense, given this arc, for them to be on the Roy. Yeah, yeah. You know, they would have had to true. move that's the location true. regardless, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it would have involved some kind of change from what they had already planned. So they had to change something. So this uh, worked out. It, it made it simpler for viewers to understand than having to understand this whole other place. It made it simpler for them, and book viewers can just have their own interpretation of what it was. Yeah. Yoko, what did you think about something? There was an interesting fan popular fan theory that we ourselves have discussed in our doom episode you wonder if they might touch on that here yeah well first of all i think that perhaps they understand that valeria is so important they want to show it i mean it's the first thing you see on the intro sequence it's on this astro globe mm. that's you, right you see that volcano yeah. that, that's the depiction of the doom so perhaps they really just really wanted to, to show it and yes in in the books, the kindly man really alludes to the faceless men having been responsible for this doom, this enormous um, cataclysmic event. And 
perhaps we're actually being set up for that to happen in the show. Perhaps we'll see the faceless men and Jacken could d- deliver a line. And then you start to wonder, you know, if this is true, this is the faceless men. Are, these, this is just not an assassin's guild. There's some <laughs> yeah. serious power to these guys. Indeed. We, of course, like I said, cover that theory in depth and the Doom in general in our episode on the Doom of Valyria. Check that out. And we let, we I think we all enjoyed seeing Drogon there. It was a cool touch. Just seeing Drogon there was neat. But I also just like the idea that he was drawn to Valyria like it's his home. There's a little of that in the books already. In, in, anyone who's read The Princess and the Queen might be aware that there's a, mis, a bit of a mystery... King Aegon II's dragon Sunfire, Sunfire the Golden, even though he had severe injuries, somehow flew to Dragonstone where his master was without him knowing it. And it was almost like he was kind of called home. So this is kind of reminiscent of that. So I thought that was a really nice touch. And it's just always awesome to see dragons on screen. That never never gets old, <laughs> personally. Yeah, and it was great for, for Tyrion and Jorah to witness Drogon over Valyria and for them to experience this this place yeah. like that. Really just makes it so real to Tyrion, kinda of snaps him out of, you know, the, you know, what he's maybe Gives him something to live for almost. Yeah, yeah, know? exactly. He's, you know, thinking I'm kidnapped, I'm with this this very quiet guy who sucks. You know, I <laughs> killed all these. I killed my lover, my father, all these things, and he's like, "But there's a dragon." And like, wow, because Jurian has dreamed of dragons his whole life. He's kind of obsessed with them. It's the, that that aspect of his personality is the basis yeah. for some fan theories that we won't get into right now. But I think you know what we're talking about, and. You know- they haven't really done that much with Tyrion talking about dragons. No, he's not a dragon-oriented guy in yeah. the show, really. Which is interesting. You, I, you know, if he's going to make it to Daenerys, you'd think that they would have laid that ground a little bit for him to mention his knowledge. Even if, even right there, he could have said something about dragons to show that. They did at least have the saddle-making. Oh. He did make Bran's saddle. At least there's sure. that. That's that's considered an important part of that uh, foreshadowing for him making dragon saddles or something along those lines. <sighs> so... There was that same haunting, dra- sad dragon music that we've yeah. been seeing. I believe the first time it appeared was at the end of last season when Danny locks uh, up her dragons with that. That was a real tear-jerking scene somehow, yeah. despite the fact that it was these murderous dragons. That, CGI. Yes, murderous <laughs> CGI animals making making us sad here. But <laughs> big part of that is the the really the strength of the music was really a part of that. Yeah. Music can really touch areas of the brain that we're not always aware of. And uh, so I'm real. I'm always on the lookout for that song. And whenever I, I think it's it's kind of their. It's like their dragon motif. I think that's I guess. my favorite. I've heard on the show. It's really that, quite that, good. Just those, those like it's like a couple notes just right there that are just like so sad and beautiful <laughs> to me. And they did, and but the dragon also was served as a distraction. It's this is really neat, guys. Go back and watch the episode, and don't watch Drogon. Watch. The ruins. The stone men appear sooner than you might think. I didn't catch this even after several watches, because like most of us, ha, I'm looking at the dragon, of course. Yeah. It's, it draws the eyes. But Ashea, you and, yeah. and you noticed this, and so did... The, actually, the first person to point this out to me was Kyle Maddock of a podcast, Device oh, and yeah. Fire. But you actually noticed it as well. Yeah, I was during my first watch, I was like, I'm like, I like, I don't know why I just pointed, but I sit right in front of the TV, like the closest, and so I'm like right up there, and I just see like this thing moving in the background during the dragon scene, and I'm like, whoa, what's that? Oh, dra- the dragon's right there. Uh, I guess the stone men are coming, and so it kind of the, the jumping out didn't quite get me. 
as much. But yeah, they look cool there. Uh, just kind of part of the scenery. They really blend It was creepy really as hell. Well. Yeah, it was yeah. good. It was like a good, like a, something out of a horror movie. It was pretty well done. Another thing in this scene, in this scene that was done well, to that, that was like a, a mixture of the good and bad. This was definitely some of the good. And the scene was more good than bad by far, I think. But the next scene we get is... I was a little surprised at how quickly the stone men moved. That's not a, I'm not disappointed in that, but it was surprising. It, it made the scene a little more exciting. Yeah. And Yoke Boy, you have some thoughts about the stone men in general, some, a little bit of history and a little bit of um, background. Yeah, some background from the books. Uh, I've grabbed a quote from Griff stroke John Conn. This is when he's starting to talk about, hey, we might encounter the stone men, okay? He says... Most stone men are feeble creatures, clumsy, lumbering, witless. Near the end, they all go mad. But that's when they're at the most dangerous. If need be, fend them off with the torches. On no account, let them touch you. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry, John. <laughs> yeah, sorry, John. <laughs> and sorry, Jorah. <laughs> and just, just a bit more background in the books the stone men live at a place called the bridge of dream and that's in the sorrows and it's kind of like a leper colony as it was in the tv show and the grayscale as in the quote causes them to go mad and they they only really become hostile when you kind of get close to them they get very hungry and stuff and, and this madness they do try and attack people and again we saw saw that in the show with three, I think in the show there's three of them dropping down. That's exactly the same in the books. Anyway, in the in the books, the shy maid sees the bridge of dream for a second time. That's the really weird bit where yeah. you get this kind of loop in the river that's never really explained. But the second time they see the same bridge, yeah, the, the three men jump from it, and one of them pulls Tyrion into the water and is saved by John Connington, who later develops. Grayscale as Jura does. So apart from the obvious differences, they kept fairly faithful to, to the sequence, I thought. They did pretty well in that respect. I think they may have even included the the a nod, an homage to the, the seeing the bridge twice, the like teleport thing that's really unexplained. Because how else do you explain how Tyrion and Jorah ended up so far away from things without their boat? It's almost like oh. they, <laughs> it's almost like they made a nod to that. Whole yeah, thing. I know they did. They did wind up real far away. I, one thing about that scene that I really liked um, is that you know Tyrion's all tied up right there on this tiny. They're on like a tiny boat, which uh, it's just a nut. It makes it really terrifying for them to be coming out after, you know, he's like backing up, trying to just stay away. He doesn't have use of his hands. Yeah, he's just truly helpless. Just yelling right there. for Mormont to help him and yeah. cut him free. And... Um, that added a good dimension to it, I thought. Yeah, I agree. So it looks like we guessed right on Jorah being the one to get grayscale. We can pat ourselves in the back for that one. And of course, we got some things wrong too, but that's the nature of making guesses. <laughs> yeah, but Jorah's much friendlier now. Yeah, after he this is. Shared, after this near-death experience, a shared experience, as, as they say in Harry Potter, you know, there's some things you can't go through without becoming friends. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, you can tell Jorah's a lot nicer. He's a lot nicer. I'm, I'm curious, will this keep up? You know, uh, yeah. how, how long will it keep up uh, until the next bad things happen? I'm not sure. Uh, now, there's a lot of questions about that. Now, watchinger Gregory White, a friend of ours, came up with a good nickname for Jorah, a very Game of Thrones-style nickname. He is now the Grey Bear. Mm -hmm. which like Grey Worm. Which, yeah, the Grey, which is nice for Grey Worm or Pale Mare, kind of fit yeah. rhymes with that, you know. And, and so, since yeah, the Grayscale might be see, replacing the Pale Mare on the if, show. If Grey Worm gets Grayscale from Jorah, he'll be the Grey Grey Worm. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
So, Yoke Boy, you had some other thoughts on Grayscale in terms of Jorah's outlook. Yeah, just for those worried about Jorah, obviously he's shaping up to be a kind of patient zero. So perhaps our first worry shouldn't be with Jorah. <laughs> but Jorah's fate, this is how it goes with Grayscale in the books, okay? Here's a quote. Death, but slow. A year? Two years? Five. Some stone men live for ten. And this is what John Connington thinks about it. So you're looking, it could be a year, but it could be as long as ten. But of course the real risk, as I said, is the spread of the disease. Especially if Jura is going to keep it a secret and have his hands on people. Now here's where I want to throw in show watcher's perspective that's really interesting. From a show watcher's perspective, they don't know what we know about Grayscale. And they've been presented with lots of Grayscale talk this season, but they've also been presented with the fact that Shireen was cured. So a lot of show watchers think that Jorah is going to get cured. That's actually a very popular belief right now amongst people who haven't read the book. So we're all a more doom and gloom about it because we just know how nasty Grayscale is. But that's part of our preconceived notions. And from a show watcher's perspective, which might be more accurate because... The books are not the show. Maybe Jorah is going to be okay. Maybe yeah. it'll just be really bad for him and he'll come out okay. Maybe he'll be scarred and messed up kind of like Shireen is, but maybe he'll get out of it somehow. So yeah. that's an interesting point of view, and I can't say that it's wrong. We'll just have to wait and see. But I, people who Jorah fans, all hope <laughs> is not lost. <laughs> are they really going to walk all the way yeah. to Marine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope not. That would be kind of silly. Yeah, that was curious. Where even was that, you know, gorgeous beach that they were on? Yeah, they should where... stay there. They should hang out there. <laughs> I, I just like, in relation to Valyria, is that Valyria? How, how, did they go that much farther? I just have, I have no idea where they are. So what <laughs> seems likely then, if we if we look at book plots, you know, boy, I think we have a good idea of what might happen. It might just kind of go similarly to the books, minus a ship. Yeah, well, bear in mind, they pointed out that they're going to be on foot. So they are vulnerable, aren't they? Yeah. A dwarf and Jura with, with grayscale. If they come across some slavers, they can't put up much of a resistance. And I think that could be how they end up in Marine. Yep. <laughs> Getting enslaved, yeah. yeah. Um, let's look even farther ahead. If Jorah gets back in Danny's good graces, he might take some of the arc that Barristan left behind. Some of the things that Barristan does in the books, maybe Jorah will take that over. I, it yeah. seems it might seem like a stretch for Jorah getting back in Danny's good graces, especially because, what, he just, all he does is bring Tyrion and Grayscale, <laughs> which is not a plus. But, you know, it's worth thinking about. It's worth considering. We, we're all pretty sure that there won't be a battle of fire, at least not nothing like the massive... Yeah epic battle that's coming in the books yeah, nothing like that but it, it's just so easy for them a much to smaller version it's just so easy to cut out the battle of fire isn't it they, they, it's one of those yeah. that they can just chop out it's massively expensive too i mean yeah you never lightly expect huge battles on screen you can't <laughs> just be oh they'll do that battle because that all those battles are massively expensive so, yeah, we can't predict that that'll happen. We, we can't say for sure that it won't, but it really looks like it won't. There's a lot of clues for that. So, so the big question here is, will Jorah's grayscale spread in marine, you know, pale mare style or something? It's hard to say pale mare. Huh? Pale mare. Pale mare. Pale mare. Yeah. Will it spread there like that? Or will it spread in Westeros? Not until he gets there. But, you know, if John Connington is, you know, Westeros, it makes sense that if there's going to be an, an outbreak of grayscale... In the books, it's going to be in Westeros. 
and so maybe he won't spread it in Marine, and he'll get to Westeros with Daenerys, and then it'll spread. Maybe there's there's no spread at all. Yeah, I'm really curious or to see both. where that goes. <laughs> no. I, I yeah, I, I expect it to spread in Marine because they're yeah. going there. That's what I think too. But I really think it's going to happen in Westeros too because the book it seems to be set up in the book. So maybe Shireen spreads it. Maybe it comes back because that's the thing that's foreshadowed yeah. too in the books. Val freaks out on Jon saying that no. Grayscale doesn't go away. It just sleeps. It will return. And that could be something with the supernatural element. That could be with yeah. the general return of magic, the comet, dragons, the others gaining in strength, all that. Maybe Grayscale is, that's part of why Grayscale is becoming more of a thing. It's very unclear how magical that disease is, but it seems the way it works, it doesn't seem entirely natural. So. Yeah, I mean, I, my big question is how even the stone men survive. Yeah, how do they continue long, to live? Yeah, it's they not live, like they're like eating. Like they're mad, you know. They're they are not exactly making eating. I, I, maybe they really are just eating like rocks. leaves. <laughs> and rock. I am rocks. <laughs> yeah. That's stone men eat stone. <laughs> so let's go to Marine. Let's talk about Marine since we're already in Essos and we're talking about the um, the the plague arriving with Jorah mm -hmm. and Tyrion who are on their way, yeah. possibly in a slave caravan. Watching her Garrett of Alcatraz Rock caught something a few of you guys out there or more caught that none of us did, though. So good job there. The prostitute who helps con the Unsullied into the ambush that Grey Worm and Barristan are taken in is the same one who is with White Rat, I believe his name is, the Unsullied whose throat is cut in the first episode of the season. We did not catch that that was the same person. It totally makes sense. But he, he also suggests the possibility that maybe she's a noble woman posing as a commoner, some sort of higher-up figure that's just kind of working her way as an agent, and we might see her again. So, look out for her. She could pop up at the wedding or oh, something yeah. like that, and that would be like, ooh. Yeah. And if you didn't know who she was, you wouldn't have caught that, if, assuming it even happens. But I don't think we've seen the last of her, so keep an eye out for her. She's kind of, she might be a bit of a nod to the Green Grace, who might be behind some of the Harpies' doings in the book. We don't know who the Harpy is. Lots of good theories out there. Lots of people have written on that. And there's a lot of valid theories on that. We won't get into that right now. Yeah. But let's talk about Hisdar. Let's talk about Hisdar's Olorak. Because he's, he's different. I don't know what to think of Hisdar in the show. I, I don't know how genuine he is. I just I go back and forth so much in whether I can trust Hisdar, whether he's involved in these attacks. I I just have no idea. I mean, uh, and the actor just he seems so genuine, and so I don't know if that's that he's a good actor showing that he's genuine, or if he's not a great actor not correctly showing that he isn't genuine. <laughs> yeah, I really get the feel sense that he's honest about his attitudes about making Marine better and all that, but I'm, I can't help but be suspicious. My cynical side wonders if he's up to something or if he will be made to be up to something. If the powers that behind the scenes kind of force him into something, that's always possible. Yeah. So what I guess we'll, think? yeah. Yoke boy, do you have any thoughts on, on his dart? Do you think he's honest or not? I think he's honest. I, I think he seems, he seems honest. It's just the impression I get from the look in his eyes that, He's none the wiser uh, about the trouble that's going on, but maybe maybe I, I am biased because that's what I think in the books that he wasn't to do with a lot of the things going on. So maybe I've been influenced. It's a very similar question to one that we didn't raise earlier in the episode about Torment, whether John should be trusting Torment or not. I get the same impression of Torment that Torment is trustworthy, that we we yeah. like Torment, and he's not a dishonest guy. He's he might be cunning, he might be a wildling killer, but he's not the type to just lie to your face, maybe. 
And so, and I think he honestly wants the wildlings to, to have the right thing happen for them, which he understands that means working with John, which is part of the compromise theme of this episode. Both John and, and the wildlings are having to compromise. So the compromise is being forced on the Night's Watch, and now we have this major compromise here of, of Hisdar and Daenerys and all that. So Danny gives a Mother's Day speech of yeah. sorts during yeah. her dragon feeding scene yes. there. Yeah, she also makes sure that the dragons share their food. Yeah, God, yeah, very nice. She's raising very polite yeah. dragons. They shared perfect tear in half there of that body. They each get half. I don't know which one got the head, though. I believe the one on the left got the head. Oh. <laughs> which was, I think, Rhaegal. <laughs> you can tell. I, could, I, could hardly, I couldn't even really tell the color of them in the darkness. They just look dark. Yeah, I'm. I'm not definitely not confident in that call, but I think it was. <laughs> so, uh, so it was maybe necessary for her to do this. It was definitely unjust. It made me feel uncomfortable. I was like, "Oh, Danny, this is this is not yeah, right." I mean, especially the way she was looking at it. Yeah, she know? looked like Ares. She looked yeah. like that gave me the that gave me Mad King feels when she had that look of her dragons tearing this dude apart and setting him on fire. A little fuel for the Danny might go insane later <laughs> theorists who I'm not. Yeah. I don't. I'm not on that team, but I do think it's possible. Uh, so that's a bit, maybe a bit of a nod there. Yeah, that look in her eyes was was a little creepy. Now, what do you think, Yoko? What are your thoughts on this scene there? There's some ties to the books here that, that maybe give us some more understanding. Well, I, I gave it a lot of thought whether there's any indication of that kind of thing in the books. And there just isn't. The nearest thing that I could come up with was that... There's a moment in Dance where Danny regrets not going further after crucifying the 163 masters. Remember, she did that in response to them doing the same to children. Yeah. To kind of show her, yeah, this is the road to Marine. This is what's happening. Um, and the, the quote is, yet yeah, some days she feared that she, she felt, feared that she'd not gone far enough. So she reminisces about this 163 masters and it seemed like it was indiscriminate, you know. Some of the people up on those crucifixes perhaps shouldn't have been there. And she doesn't have regret. She's very cold-hearted. She she really thinks I should have done it to all of them. But there's nothing like giving a person to a dragon or anything Aries reminiscent, <laughs> as you say. Shades of Aegon II and Rhaenyra to me. Oh, yeah. yeah Aegon II fed Rhaenyra to the same dragon, Sunfire, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And Shades of Quentin. King, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah as well. That's and, true. and King Aegon III witnessed this. The future King <laughs> Aegon III witnessed his mother being eaten, so that messed him up a bit. So... Yeah, the it definitely, I agree, there's a lot of... It, and she talks about justice so much earlier in the season, so she's really kind of... It really shows that she's sailing without a rudder a bit. Now, she does come back strong from this mistake, so I, I give her respect for that. She made a big mistake here. This is very unjust. But that's the point. She's This is part of her learning arc. It reminds us that she's a young person, kind of in over her head, but capable in the, in the long run. She's got the talent. She's got the skill. She doesn't have the experience. She doesn't have the right attitude sometimes because she, she loses her temper. And this is a, a recurring theme of a lot of characters. We talked about this with Ramsay and Cersei, about how they're both so filled with rage and paranoia 
that they don't stop and think. This is Danny's version of that same thing. She gets her temper. She loses her temper and she gets cruel and, sa- and almost savage with her attempts to get back at the people that made her feel that way. And it's not always Did you not just. think it was quite unrealistic that she suddenly changed her mind? I don't know if it was unrealistic, but it was too quick. It was my same complaint that I had with the John Stark stuff where it was just like boom done john's not going to take the offer i thought that danny's decision i thought that she arrived at a reasonable place but it happened so quickly it was Masande, you know Mazande's speech was part of that whole thing but it was it was a little rushed but it's better than you know it's better than cutting out other things they would have had to just to, to extend that to make it make more sense they would have had to cut other things and the show already has to cut so much so i accept it i think that it i i, I will criticize it for being a little quick but i will say that with a grain of salt because i understand that they don't want to drag that out and Mm. so i'm okay with it it's not it's not perfect by any means but i understand so let's talk about let's go ahead and talk about that danny and masande scene and she like she talks she's a little lost with her decisions what what did you think of masande's speech yeah it was kind of meh to me yeah i was glad i mean i just few episodes ago i was talking about how i was i was like when was the last time daenerys had a scene with just Missande? and here we have one with the two of them and i mean her point is pretty valid she doesn't know what she doesn't know what to tell us she doesn't know what kind of advice to give her she can only just tell her that she's seen her compromise and she's yeah. seen her way different options but i don't know the scene just uh, it's just it's lacking it's boring to hmm. me or something i'm not sure i thought the underlying message of her speech there was good but it wasn't maybe delivered the best way so there's yeah it's a little of it's a little of both let's talk about gray worm and masande this was i thought it was i, I like this relationship i like they have it but i didn't really like this scene i thought it was a little cheesy yeah a little <laughs> okay so it was a lot cheesy yeah it's, uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know Worm was i guess he's real smooth there but, yeah uh, it was a smooth line but it was weird it was a weird line too and yeah i, I... I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I guess he's. A, I guess he was afraid of that. I. I, I just. I just didn't believe him. <laughs> it doesn't lend itself to much analysis either. It just kind of no. happened, and yeah. there's not. It. It doesn't lead. <laughs> it's not going to lead to you know big other plots. I don't think. Uh, we have Danny and his dar, which d- is going to lead to other big plots. We have. She immediately just turns around. The pits are going to be reopened. She. Has she decides to marry his dar? I like that. That was her choice entirely. That's a cool aspect of this. That it was her decision. That that's something that came from this chat with Masande, where she's like, you know, you're right. I sometimes do make really good decisions on my own. For example, the whole the plot to take Marine, the plot to uh, send wine to the second sons, and the, and all that, and her her kind of manipulating the different officers of those sellsword companies. That was all her. She didn't even tell her counselors. Yeah. Jorah and Barristan were both caught off guard by that and realized that that was a good plan. So Danny has shown, demonstrated, you know, quality planning and thinking ahead, even in a military situation before. So she's smart. No, there's no way around it. She just isn't always, doesn't always think. <laughs> you know, in the books, I never really considered the marriage the, the marriage to be like a good idea hmm. like I've, so I've considered like someone pushing her and i i don't know it just didn't it just didn't uh, seem like a, a good idea at all and so here on the show it being daenerys's idea isn't necessarily a good thing to me because it could be a bad idea of hmm. daenerys's okay yeah uh, i don't know how it'll go though in yeah. the books or the show right um, <laughs> so 
Yoke Boy, you had some thoughts on paralleling some of the book, some things from the book marriage to to here. Yeah, as you say, you know, they they are compressing it, condensing it. And one thing that's missing is the 90 days of peace. You're not going to expect that they're going to do 90 days on the show. But there's actually no conditions, it seems, to this marriage. So so Danny is really putting all all her chips on, on this, you know, marriage coming to fruition and it working. There's no kind of trial to see if it's a good idea. And... One idea I had was one thing I was thinking about. What is Dario's reaction going to be? Oh yeah, and you know, could could <laughs> he's he turn against cutting his dar's head off? <laughs> yes, he, like yeah, that's it. He's suggested taking his head off, and now Danny's going to marry him from out of nowhere. Well, she's kind of in a relationship with Dario, so there'll be really interesting dynamics. I think, and you know, could Dario be the one to turn? on Danny or Betrayer like Brown Ben Plum, for example. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I, I don't know who yeah, he would have to get paid more. It would be similar-ish to the books in that, like you said, that Brown Ben Plum turned. So something along those lines, because Dario, even though he's Dario, he's really an amalgam of Dario and Brown Ben Plum and, you know, some other characters who are more minor. But... So we don't know. We, we can't necessarily predict his arc based on what Book Dario does. So that's a good wait and see moment there. But it's a very good thing to keep your eyes on and watch out for maybe Dario not being so loyal anymore. Yeah, I've certainly seen other people theorizing that you know he'll have some similarities to Quentin Martell's storyline, possibly uh, in terms maybe, of the dragons. Maybe Dario frees the dragons. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, perhaps Dario so. gets roasted. Yeah. <laughs> Roast Dario. Now, in Danny's A Dance with Dragons storyline, now that we can confirm some of these parallels that we've seen from this episode, now that we basically, things that we long suspected, like the pits being opened and the marriage, we we expected those to happen, but we weren't 100% sure. So that allows us to take things a step further. Without the pits, we couldn't exactly predict that Drogon would show up in the pits. So now that we know the pits are going to happen, we can be pretty sure that that's how Drogon is going to come back into the picture, just like he does in the books, or at least very similar. So let's think about some other possibilities. Like, we can't... We were just guessing about what his Dar might do with his new powers. He's going to be king. Maybe that makes him a shitty guy instead of seemingly kind of a cool, reasonable Miranese guy. Instead, maybe he'll be become drunk with power now that he's going to be the king consort. Maybe he'll try to pull some things like he's suspected of pulling in the books that we're not quite sure of. Now, it's easy to forget the poisoned locusts from the book because it's Strong Bellowas who eats them and he's obviously nowhere to be seen. It's his own fault, of course, because he let the show cut him once, like he always did in the pit. Ah, pun. So, what do you think, Yoke Boy? What do you think if if there's some possibilities? Who else might be a candidate for getting poisoned in in Strong Bellowas' place if they go that route, which they might not? Okay, so if they do go down that road... So Danny herself has got to be out. Yeah. And she's really running out of counsellors, isn't she? Now <laughs> Barristan's gone. And Dario and Miss and I are really the only options. As you say, it comes down to who's actually available, like we see in other plot points. Uh, unless we consider Hisdar himself as a potential victim instead of a you know possible vaguely possible culprit 
you know, it's pinned on him in the, in the books, isn't it? Yeah. So they they might just want to kill him instead of incriminating him here or. Yeah, they could do, but it's probably an unnecessary plot point, I think. So I think they're just going to leave it out. Yeah, that's I a good point. Probably, what do you think? I don't think they'll leave it in. I, I just, uh, I don't know that they want to kill off any more of Daenerys' counselors, <laughs> and if they have to, they just have to say who poisoned it, who poisoned it. That you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm, I think it'll be cut for sure. Okay, well. We'll see. I, I definitely don't feel super confident in it. I think there's a chance. Okay. It occurred to me while we were working on this episode, and I thought, you know what? Maybe someone will get poisoned. Uh, but I agree. It doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reason to do it. But if it does come up, we'll be ready for it. So real quick, like, we're going to move on to the next section of the episode. If you guys want to support the show by making purchases that don't cost any additional money, you can go to Amazon, do your shopping through Amazon, Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon Books, videos, music, movies, all that. Anything you buy through historyofwesteros.com through the Amazon links will cost the same as if you bought it through Amazon I recommend directly. getting the 2016 uh, Song of Ice and Fire calendar, which art, comes yeah. out, which is going to come out, I think, July or middle of June or middle of July, but it's got art from um, Magali Villanueva who did some of the art, a lot of the art for the World of Ice and Fire, and she's the first female to do the Song of Ice and Fire calendar, which is pretty neat. Uh, I'm really, and it also is supposed to have um, a scene from the Winds of Winter in the calendar. Actually, they said, nice. um, so that's pretty huge as well. So you have some time to pre-order that. I'm very excited for my my copy. We've got like what, three or four years worth of calendars here now? Yeah, we've been collecting them, them for a while. <laughs> there is good stuff. Yeah, the calendars are really good, really good source of art and a good reminder, you get to have a Song of Ice and Fire every day. Yeah. So let's move on to the North. We start with Brienne and Podrick. It's a short scene, but it's, yeah. it's pretty meaningful. I was scared for a minute because th that peasant had one of those fray hats. It's yeah. like a fisherman's cap or something, but all the fray, the frays just wear those hats. And no one else uh, pretty much. Yeah, and, and I've read a, I read a funny, really funny post about it a long time ago about all the different types of fray hats, a uh, humor <laughs> post about it, and it's stuck with me ever since. And so I see this guy come in with the fray hat, and I'm like, oh, watch out, Brienne, don't tell him. Yeah, that guy's a traitor. He's working yeah. with the Boltons or something. Yeah. It's one of my very minor, very nitpicky complaint I have is these commoners, especially older commoners that have perfect teeth. And it just is just not quite, just a few tooth gaps, just, a, just a, a few black caps on some teeth, which fix that. But oh, yeah. that's a really minor quibble. <laughs> but one thing that was a little maybe missing that's a, a bit more of a quibble, but has a reasonable explanation potentially is... He talks about this guy is loyal to the Stark. Kind of, she gets the Brienne gets the feeling that this guy is an, you know, a, a, a real Northerner. You know, he's he's a Stark and Winterfell kind of guy. He remembers uh, Eddard's father, Rickard, and he remembers his father, Edwil. He doesn't say them by name, I don't think, but he certainly has been around a while. He's a Stark loyalist a bit. Now he doesn't mention that Ramsay's a psychopath, though, which should be at least Northerners should know that. It's it's. I thought it was at least somewhat reasonable that Littlefinger hadn't learned that yet. But there's no way this dude doesn't know. Yeah, that. at least northerners, but at least the people in the area around Winterfell. Yeah, they should know this guy reasons. is awful. The stories have been spreading. He's he flayed Ramsay, flayed the yeah. Kerwin lords. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, even that. That's one, yeah. really nearby. Now, some people complained about the fact that there was this building so close to Winterfell that that Brienne was looking at. And come on, 
I'm all for legitimate criticism, but this building has been there for a while. <laughs> Tyrion went to this whorehouse. It's not necessarily the same building, but Tyrion went to a whorehouse outside of Winterfell in the first couple episodes, more than once. And there's a winter town in the books, which is a town that's right outside of Winterfell that people come to to live together, to be close together and share their resources when winter is at its worst. So this could easily be seen as that. Yeah. So this is totally fits. There's no, you don't even have to explain it away. It is a complete perfect fit. It just, we've all forgotten about it. I had to look it up. I thought it was weird at first too until I looked it up. So that fits nicely. But watching her from Russia with Love 007, 007 rather. Oh, yeah. Sorry, your James Bond name is very important there. Bri he, he asked if Brienne was going to be combined with Manderly, and it, ex it would explain the travel and combine some of the plot lines. Good thought, but apparently we're just going right past the travel. Brienne just made it to Winterfell somehow. But that doesn't mean she can't be involved in some of the Manderly plot line, which is the taking of revenge inside Winterfell and maybe nightly murders. Well... Brienne doesn't necessarily seem like the type to be the knightly murderer type, but she could. She could be doing that. And I like the idea of, I certainly like the idea of her in, infiltrating Winterfell. I think that's not unlikely to happen. It might be a little more like Mance than yeah. like Manderly, but there's some evidence that Mance and Manderly were working together. So it, it fits pretty well. So good thinking there. But let's talk about Ramsay and Miranda. There's some book parallels there, too. Miranda isn't as random as she might seem in terms of her character appearing. Although that name, I hate that they gave her that name. Like, I wish, I agree. They care so much about changing names, and they changed Asha to Yara, and all that. Like, they couldn't even change Miranda. Like, they, they named her after Miranda Royce came in. There's Mar It's just weird to me that they mm. have Miranda interacting with Sansa and Miranda Royce interacting with Sansa and both have jealousy over Sansa. Uh, anyways, it's it, a huge, it, it really bothers me. Yeah, I wonder. I, I'm not sure if it was just an accident or if they did that on purpose it's to like kind so of carry over the two Mandra to, to yeah. the two Mirandas. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yokoi, tell us about some of those parallels. Well, I was just thinking because Miranda in this episode reveals that she's the kennel master's daughter, and it got me thinking about Pala, who was the kennel master's daughter at Winterfell. So, no, I did have a look for parallels. I, I, I really don't think it. What I was thinking is perhaps there's a clue to Miranda's fate in, Pal in Pala's fate. Miranda was actually the, the Kenomaster's daughter at the Dreadfort, and, and now they've moved. So it's not exactly that she's not taking the character of Pala at all. But for what it's worth, Pala is raped by the Ironborn and then taken captive at the Dreadfort, actually, and her final fate or well-being is unknown. So I, I don't really think much can be gleaned, but I, I like to kind of throw it out there. Maybe someone has an idea. Yeah, it's a good parallel. It's worth mentioning. Maybe one of you guys out there will pick something out that we did not. As always, we have been really enjoying incorporating user... I keep saying user. Watching her feedback. And I think you guys your have asked a lot is of... telling you something. It's <laughs> telling you... It's a shorter word. A lot of great questions, a lot of great feedback, and we're going to do a series of them at the end of this episode, assuming we have time, which I think we will. Mm -hmm. So some of the questions we've woven into our dialogue here, and some of them we'll just do as standalone. Miranda's jealousy bores Ram uh, Ramsey, and he says this chilling, line, you're not going to bore me, are you, Miranda? And she says, never, and <laughs> bites his lip and shows that this is what Ramsey likes. Ramsey, I guess he likes his women to be kind of violent and like that <laughs> yeah. so which which actually there was more to the scene than i thought when i first saw the scene i was like oh what is this just just showing naked people again come on but i think it might be a clue to sansa's path to getting ramsey 
you know, on to being able to manipulate Ramsey. If she can do treat him a bit like the way Miranda does, you know, it'll be hard for her because she's not really like that naturally. But if she can learn to do that, she can learn to manipulate Ramsey. She has contempt enough enough for him. She definitely has contempt enough for him. That is very true. We'll be seeing a little more of that in just a few minutes. But so I think there was the undertones in that scene were actually more interesting than I thought on my first watch. So. I think that might be a bit of a parallel, might be foreshadowing for what Sansa needs to do to not have awful things happen to her through Ramsey. And I, I do have a lot of optimism there, so I hope, I hope I'm right too, because none of us want to see bad things happen to Sansa. But what about, what about Miranda's danger that she's putting herself in there, Yoke Boy? Yeah, we, we did say on our episode three evaluation that Miranda's jealousy was heading towards sowing the seeds of her own downfall. And I think now it's been brought up again with that line that, you know, you know what happens to people who bore me. Hmm. I, I think it looks very ominous to Miranda. And you, you know what? If it's Miranda instead of Sansa, I'll be all right. But um, yeah. I, I think bad <laughs> things will happen to Miranda. And that's what we've said since episode three. A lot of, pe- a lot of your watchers and people out there have um, thought the same thing too. Yeah. So we have right before that, in between Sansa meeting with Miranda, we have Sansa and the old woman's servant. And I just took it for granted that this message was from Brienne, that she says, you know, if you're ever in trouble, light a candle in the broken towel, you're not alone. First of all, this is kind of weak, like run up to the tower and light a candle. Like what? But a few people, including watching her, Dan Koisman, suggested the possibility that maybe that wasn't the message from Brienne, maybe that was something else. What do you guys think? Do you think it's any chance? Do you think it's just the simple that came from Brienne, or maybe there's something else? Brienne's message hasn't come yet. Any possibility for that? Well, I think it's more likely for it to be Brienne than for it to be a trick or anything from mm. someone. It just makes more sense for Bri- you know, light a, if you light a candle. Bri- but can Brienne even see that? I wouldn't think so. It's so far. It's it was kind of a weird thing all around to me. Mm. Uh, I, maybe it isn't Brienne just because, again, I, what help does that do to Brienne? Like, well, it is in the top tower, isn't it? It's in the it's in a very tall tower. So whether it's realistic in real life, in actual TV show dynamics, it makes sense that it's someone outside. You know, light it, light it, so someone outside can see. Because if you're in Winterfell, you wouldn't. Okay, be able I guess to see I just it. I just can't imagine actually still being able to see it from that far away, like where Brienne is. For being able to see like a, that tiny light, a candle light, in a during tower. the day she certainly wouldn't be able to. No. Yeah, this was part of why it's weird. At night, I guess she probably could. Yeah, at night. I, well, I just I don't even know about it at night. Maybe it's just me because I'm blind without my glasses on. <laughs> I'm like, how can she possibly see so far? Mm. But uh, it seemed like from where she's looking um, at win- in Wintertown, looking at Winter Winterfell, I, I just I can't see there being a little light there. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little awkward. There might be some logistical problems with that whole uh, that whole scene there uh what do, what do you think yoke boy about in general though skipping past that awkwardness the logistical issues what do you think from a from a higher level view okay i think it's an increasingly frightening situation for sansa but she does seem to have allies perhaps in brienne and some of the winterfell folk too but you know i really hope that sansa doesn't remain trapped in a purely victim role you know like a damsel in distress i actually hope that she's proactive and is able to use her smarts in protecting herself 
as I think that we'd all like to see more of that side to her personal growth. She's been in a hostage-type situation since very early on now, at the end of season one, really. She's kind of been in this hostage role. I'm becoming slightly bored of those dynamics, so I'm really hoping (laughs) there's some way that Sansa can take some control, you know, to some extent at least, of her own kind of well-being. And on on one hand, there's the looming threat of the monstrous Ramsay, and on the other, there's Littlefinger's hints that he's taught her to play the game and that she's learnt from the best. So I'm praying that the latter the latter case uh, comes to the fore as otherwise Sansa's character is going to head down a one-dimensional route I think and continuous torture of a young girl um, in my opinion is going to start to feel very cheap perhaps cowardly and weak as a treatment of her character yeah I, I definitely couldn't agree more with that analysis I'm the Sansa's plotline is to the point where I don't know where it's going. I don't have very high hopes, and if it goes to a certain point, that'll be it for me in terms of reviewing the show. If it, I, I'm trying to keep my hopes up, but I just don't have. I, I, I'm not very optimistic about what they're doing here in terms of what Sansa's going to experience and what she is going to do herself instead of just reacting to things. Um, and so I really do hope that she does actually take some matters into her own hands soon. I, I'm pretty uh, optimistic because I expect that to happen. I do think she's going to take <laughs> things in her own hands. And I think the the courage she showed at the dinner, which we'll talk about in a minute, and, and other parts and in general... And like you said, Yoke Boy, about the hints that Littlefinger has taught her well, as well as the where, where her book arcs are going, which is she is starting to take more control. I think everything is heading into a Sansa taking control of her own life direction. So maybe my optimism is misplaced, but I do think that she is going to come out on top of this Bolton situation. So, Well, I think she's going to come up on top, but I think there's going to be something horrible happening and I don't I, I think some horrible things will happen but I'm not but, sure they'll happen to her they'll happen around her yeah, maybe we'll, yeah we'll see I'm, I'm hoping although I, yeah. I hate it when they show the the torture and stuff like I'd hate it if she had to watch him kill Miranda and torture her as well that would also be very unpleasant for me that would be very pleasant uh, yeah I don't think I need to see any more of that on to Miranda um and Sansa and Theon we have Miranda being like really creepy here yeah. and it was like really forward of her I thought to touch Sansa like that I mean she's a peasant she's a kennel master's daughter and she's yeah. Sansa isn't like the bastard Elaine Stone this is Sansa Stark and you're just coming up to her and touching her her arm and stuff that's just yeah it was, it was... I, I would have expected her to like stop her <laughs> earlier and I was also surprised that Sansa even went into the kennel in the first place it seems like such an unnecessary risk uh and I feel like she should be somewhat on edge for, like, people know who she is now. She is in danger. Someone could be there to kill her. And maybe it's just showing that Sansa is very brave. She's familiar with animals. She's familiar with animals, with wolves, with her dire wolf. She's not really scared of dogs. But as it turns out, she didn't really need to worry about anything because it was just her showing her Theon. Yeah, and, yeah, I was scared of that, too. It was about, he got, he gets about halfway, or she gets about halfway through, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be Theon. <laughs> I know, at first, I'm yeah. like, don't go in there. Oh, dogs don't go in there. there. Yeah. <laughs> don't listen to her. A side note, when we're, she was asking her about her clothes, um, the next scene when you see her at the Bolton family dinner, uh, Sansa's actually, she's wearing one of those northern collars that we've seen on, like, Arya and Catelyn, and season one we saw it, um, 
this like a ropey kind of big collar <laughs> and uh, her hair at dinner was also worn in Catlin style mm-hmm. which is kind of nice, nice yeah. that she uh, changed her clothes after Miranda complimented her and there's another uh, kind of parallel to Catlin there a little nod to Catlin yep boy that you that you wanted to explain to us yeah, the the tall tower that we see that she's supposed to light a candle, light a very luminous candle <laughs> at the top of, turns out to be the, the one that Bran was pushed from by Jamie all that time ago. So it's a nice little tie back to the very first episode of the show. And um, Shay, you had something else to oh, say yeah. about that, didn't you? Yeah, we, I mean, we even had an exact shot from the exact same angle, like looking down um, of of Catelyn um, in season one, looking up at the tower there. Um, it's spot on. It's the exact same shot, except now there's, you know, some snow on the ground in Sansa's shot. Yeah, that's true. And nice. One more thing about Miranda. I think that it's... Uh, I think that she is being the one set up to have something awful happen to her rather than Sansa. And Sansa may be witness to that. Because I think that is part of why they're making her so creepy and crazy is so that we will mm-hmm. be go. less disturbed by having bad things happen to her. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's not going to be undisturbing, but it would certainly... It's, I think we can all agree that even if we don't want to see it, we would vastly prefer, like Real Boy said, seeing it happen to her than to Sansa. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an interesting scene, though, an interesting question about the whole dog kennel thing. Did Sansa, did Theon set that up, or did, did Ramsay set that up, or no? Yeah, that's the big question. See, for me, I really, I, I went watching it, I didn't think so at first. Like, it didn't even cross my mind, and then I, I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, it really doesn't make sense. Like, that was a kind of weak plot of Miranda's to just do that. Like, I don't know what her plan was, how that was going to cause some rift or upset Sansa that much. It just It just seemed weak, and it seemed like a huge risk of Miranda to me, for her to risk risk her position with Ramsay like that, just for this. And so it made a lot of sense to me for Ramsay to tell Miranda to do that off screen. And then when he brings Theon in to interrogate him, you know, and he asks, is there something you wanted to tell me, Reek? You know, it, it's like a he test. Knows. He's a yeah. test. He knows. It's a, t- a perfect test. And then he gets to just forgive him. He wasn't mad because he knew already. So he, had, he wasn't able to, like, fly off the handle, which I would have normally expected from him. Yeah. And so I really thought that. But then there was a counterpoint and there was a quote from Ewan Rian. Uh, and he said he didn't necessarily want Reek to meet Sansa until he was ready. That they've inadvertently met means that he feels he needs to regain the power. So that, yeah, so... That maybe that idea doesn't work after all, but it it fits so nicely because you would think you know Ramsay would want to test Reek to make sure he's still loyal now that Sansa's around, but the actor denies that that's the case. So we're yeah. left with Miranda just doing something kind of odd on her own, and like you said, it doesn't seem to have a purpose. It doesn't it's not like freaking Sansa out a little bit. Yeah. And but. so are we going to see him mad at Miranda in the next scene they have together? We haven't seen the two of them together since then. Yeah, this so. could be heading towards what we talked about, about Miranda's downfall. Yeah. This could be the start of that. Yeah. So let's talk about that moment real quick with Theon and Ramsay. Uh, <laughs> he's talks about how we don't have secrets from each other, and some, yeah, somehow the not... The not hurting him somehow was more terrifying. The tension was unreal. That yeah, scene. they had that line where he says, "Get on your knees." I, I laughed out loud during the episode. It was just too hilarious to me, and I just thought about it. there's a lot of fans of stuff like Theon and Ramsay, and like they're just giving them bait with that line. Get on your knees. <laughs> Give me your hand. You know, it's just uh, yeah, definitely Ramsay's just so hilarious the way he says every line. I, that actor's so great. 
So yeah, he uh, he's, uh, he's he's great, he, and he shows it off even more. I think in the next scene with the Winterfell and Bolton family dinner, we'll call it another mo- nod to Mother's Day in the scene with Ramsay calling Fat Walda mother, and then the notion that she's pregnant a little later in the scene. Ramsay's toast. Oh, yeah. Very sense of very uh, yeah. doesn't drink. Yeah, she's not very subtle of her to do that. <laughs> I mean, she's at a plunk. small. It's not like she's at a big dinner. <laughs> yeah, there's four she's, of them. Yeah. Four of them. They're gonna <laughs> notice. It's a pretty overt, you know, dislike she has of them. Uh, and then in the scene and the episode in, in general, like with Stannis when he corrects uh, Offal's grammar, they have that nice focusing in on faces, which just adds so much humor. To every scene when they do it. Yeah, it's great comic relief this episode. And, and the camera shots. Like, the, yeah. the show does a really good job on camera shots in general. The production and cinematography are, are always top-notch. It's the reason the show has won a lot of awards, despite just being... It's not just for popularity. They actually do really good work on a lot of these things. Even the pan-up to John. Yeah, the pan-up to John is exactly what I was Perfect. thinking of. <laughs> and, yeah, Sansa just comes right out and says, you know, this is my home. It's the people who are strange. She's just openly saying semi not necessarily hostile things that might be too strong of a word but combative and, and unfriendly and but i guess that makes sense maybe ruse and ramsey would be more suspicious of her if she was just going along with everything like yeah i'm dick to do i'm fine i'll marry you that might be make them more suspicious but that might actually fit with their image of her you know as patriarchal type folks who just expect the woman to just not do anything just to her for her to be meek yeah. sansa is clearly not Meek, at least not at this point. Yeah, you know, poor Walda. She's trying to reach out to, to Sansa there, and you know, and she's like, the it's the people who are strange. It's like yeah. they're strange to Walda too. She's not. She's new here too, and new to her new husband and new son, and in a dangerous place. I'd like to see more of Walda actually. Yeah, I think we will too. Put just picture put yourself in Sansa's place. She's having dinner with Frey's and Bolton's, the ones who like this is everyone who killed her family. And then Theon walks in to complete the yeah. trifecta. Yeah. It's like, jeez, it's all the people. Like, if only she could be. She's like, Can can I be Gregor Clegane for five minutes? And just slaughter all these people. Uh-huh. But she'll have to play a more patient and cunning game, which I, I really expect that'll happen. Now, is she Another thing that gives me hope for Sansa being relatively safer is some things from the book. Now, Lady Dustin, an important character in A Dance with Dragons, she points out that, here's a quote, Lady Arya's sobs do us more harm than all of Lord Stannis' swords and spears. If the bastard means to remain Lord of Winterfell, he had best teach his wife to laugh. In other words, the way Ramsay is treating fake Arya in the book is undermining the Northerners support for the Boltons because they have an affection for Arya and the Starks even though that's obviously not the real Arya so that might be a bit of protection for Sansa that people aren't necessarily willing to tolerate bad things happening to her we've already seen the servants are on her side so that that's a thing that might be waiting to help her if she needs it but Ramsay's also, my perception of Ramsay is, if book to show comparison, is that the book version of Ramsay is smarter. He's more cunning. He showed his father tw- at least on two different times that his plan was good, even you though Roos was version? sort of ob- objecting it. I'm sorry, the show version of Ramsay okay. has done things that the book version didn't do that were clever. He seems to be funnier, too. Yeah, oh yeah, he's definitely funnier. <laughs> 
and handsome. Clever. Yes, that is also true. That's not hard. Yeah, that's not hard. <laughs> Ramsey in the books is described as quite ugly like and big, wet, big wet yeah. lips, Doughy worm lips, fate, yeah. yeah, worm lips like Joffrey has, and a weird like ruby blood drop earring yeah. in one ear. Yeah, he just sounds it's... like a. He sounds pretty creepy. <laughs> So, so that all helps me feel. That's part of why I feel the way I do about Sansa. All those factors. Then we have so we have Ramsay being just a total jerk. He's constantly bringing up Sansa's dead family as if she doesn't, as if she's fully aware of it, based on the fact that she's sitting with Freys, Boltons, and Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> so I'm sure she thought of that already. But Ramsay's just rubbing it in, rubbing it in, and it's so awkward because he's Ramsay is forces Theon to make this apology that he doesn't he shouldn't make because Theon didn't do it but Ramsay you know and Roos did have a part in hurting her family so mm. it's just ah Reek is the closest thing you have to living kin he says Reek is going to give away the bride just like in the book uh, Marceline R and others wonder if Theon will help Sansa take down the Boltons we've we've thought about this a bit I think it's a decent chance of that I think it's more likely that he helps her escape, like Jane Poole does. Like he just helps Jane Poole escape, but it could be something a little more direct, more like stabbing someone in the back or uh, something more combative or violent, rather than just an escape. Huh. So we have Ramsey's, and Ramsey breaks the tension with his true. That was getting truly tense with his more great <laughs> acting there. Of course, he's the one that's making it tense. And then Ramsay freaks out, um, can't contain his disgust at the notion that Walda is pregnant, and Sansa needles him and gets a gets a little bit of pleasure out of that. So, Yuck Boy, you had some some notice. You noticed some things about that. Yeah, worries for Walda. We're going to come to worries in the yeah, week. Yeah, we should worry for Walda. <laughs> I think we've all got worries for Walda. <laughs> Here we see Ramsay. Perhaps he's jealous. You know, and it's in the same kind of sequence after just after telling Miranda not to be jealous and his reaction might not bode well for Fat Walder if he sees or continues to see the child as a threat and Roos and the writers of the show obviously made a point of saying that this child is going to be a boy so definite threat for Ramsay whether you know in his mind it's a threat or in the real world it's a threat it doesn't really matter as long as he thinks it's a threat Walder's in trouble yeah um I, I did look up the the books there's a there's a quite a funny quote if she pops out sons the way she pops in tarts the dread fort will soon be overrun with boltons ramsay will kill them all of course and that's for the best I will not live long enough to see new sons to manhood and boy lords are the bane of any house. Yeah, we have that. That will segue us to Roos and Ramsey together. Yeah, conversation, which uh, I was glad to have this conversation, but it was missing one of my favorite little bits in the books, actually. Is when yeah, they Roos set it talks, up and then didn't do it. They set it up. But they <laughs> talked so much about their sex life and there's a line where Roos says, you know, he's like, I quite like my my, my 
wife, <laughs> her size and sounds, and he talks about, you know, how she's very responsive in bed, which is just such a great touch to imagine their, like, active sex life. Yeah, Bruce Bolton, the, like, the most, like, cold yeah. and uncaring person, and he's like, oh, I find her quite endearing. It's yeah, like, really? It's just, uh... Yeah, it's such a great <laughs> thing, but we still have plenty of time, maybe, for them to talk about their sex life more. Maybe we'll hear them having sex. Yeah, instead... All, the, all the Sansa hearing Lysa and Littlefinger, she'll instead hear Bruce and Walda. <laughs> oh, wow, that'd be great. I hope that happens. Yeah. It's, that would be a really funny, obscure parallel. Santa hears sex from a, di from a different couple. <laughs> yeah, she heard sex from Ramsey's room. It would be like sounds of like whipping. Yeah. And this, I love, instead, Bruce gets a different comedic line. He said, when, when Ramsey's joking, we're like, how do you, how did you actually sleep with her? How did you find it? And, you know, how did you do it? And he says, I'm sure you're quite familiar with the procedure. And... And then as Ramsey gets more petulant, Roos kind of shuts him down and says, you disgraced yourself at dinner. And the way he just always shuts him down with like one hard line. Uh -huh. And you're worried about your position. And Ramsey says, I'm your son until a better alternative comes along. And then we get the great, great, in a, I don't mean great, like, oh, how great. But the origin story of Ramsey, which is well, a well-written passage, but obviously very dark and kind of disturbing. But it is pretty much straight from A Dance with Dragons. The only real difference being, instead of the eyes being the main similarity, the thing that Ramsey has of Roos's is the one feature that they have in common is the eyes, which are very distinct. Roos's are more are stronger. They're the pa very pale, and Ramsey's are a little less pale, but they're still very distinct. Mm -hmm. And instead, Roos just says, I recognized you as my son. But this is a direct, this whole scene is a direct parallel to Tyrion and Tywin. And it's the whole you are my son speech where Tywin, the only time Tywin is a good father to Tyrion is when he needs him. This is right after Jaime is captured after the Battle of the Whispering Wood. Tywin is fears for Jaime's life because Joffrey's just cut Ned's head off right before that. So Jaime's life is clearly in danger. But the reason he's doing that is he says, you know, I'm, I want you to go be hand of the king for me. And he's like, I need you. You're my son. It's he's basically setting him up. He's the one time he's nice to him is because he needs something from him. Huh. This is the same thing happening here. Roos Bolton acts like Ramsey's his real son, as if Roos isn't just going to do what's best for him when the yeah. time comes. I'm sure that if this new kid, if Roos likes this new kid better, then he'll be the heir. But if Roos likes Ramsey better, then he'll be the heir. But Roos hasn't decided yet. He's not right. going to decide. Ramsey's got Sansa, which is uh, why he needs him. Right. To be clear, that's a big reason. Plus, he needs it to have an heir, actually have an heir. He doesn't just want to have, like, a baby in Twelta's belly. Right. So but, as, as soon as he gives this, uh, you're my son speech, he says, oh, and by the way, we're going to go fight Stannis now. Are you with me? <laughs> it was like right have, after the my son speech. At any point in the show, I know it wasn't during this scene. Did they have it in a previous scene when Rant, when Roos says, you know, don't make me rue the day I raped your mother? No, he doesn't say that ex specifically, but he, you know, we get the story. Like, yeah, we'll, I, just, I wasn't sure if that had happened in a previous, uh, you know, episode. I don't recall something. that happening, no. Certainly from the books, of course, but yeah, not. I don't think that's yeah. happened here. Maybe it will happen now that he's, now it's been established. Yeah, now been, yeah maybe now he'll get to say it again later. He'll yeah. Say, oh, yeah. So we have, it, that scene was a little bit like some, I don't know, they were like Sith Lords at the end there. They were like villains scheming, oh, the Winterfell, you know, the North is ours. You, know, <laughs> you helped me cold it. You know. But this, the other thing about that, though, is it sounds that they're, the, the battle and the campaign is, is very imminent. There's not gonna, they're not going to wait to marry Sansa. This, the marriage to Sansa has got to be soon because the campaign 
can't happen until the marriage. He's not going to Ramsey's not going to leave Winterfell to go out on campaign until he's married Sansa. So that's that seems to be going to seemingly going to happen pretty soon. Which leads us to a very big question: Will we see the Battle of Ice this season? I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, manpower is an interesting question. I think we will. It could be something that we they just have, they've just hidden from us from the trailers, but yeah, it'd be, it's interesting to see. If not, maybe we'll see it early next season. Yeah, maybe. Watching her Clayton Gardner suggests Roos could be forced to flee south, which would be a way to bring the Freys back into the picture. They could still be there when the White Walkers make <laughs> it through the north, emerging from the neck, which would be frozen, and they could all be holed up there to fight together. That's a good idea. I can see that happening. Uh, we have another suggestion, though, for how the Freys could get back in the picture, and it comes from the realization that Stannis has more men than Bolton at this point, which is not the same it is in the book. The missing link is the Freys. The show didn't give the viewers a good reason for a Frey army to be in the north, but maybe there is one yeah. now. Yeah, Wall's pregnancy gives a really logical reason for Lord Waller to send Roose help, you know, against Stannis. Walder obviously wants his grandchild to be protected. I mean, Walder's a shitty guy, we all know that. But he is very loyal to his family, you know, especially with land and titles he wants them all in positions of power um and so he wants his his grand he wants his great grandchild to you know be a ruler of the north or at least of some bolton area obviously so a bolton loss just you know a bolton loss is a loss to the phrase in walder's head so it makes a lot of sense you know for him to send stannis some men it really does and we have of course the the, the, the site of the Red Wedding here is the Freys Castle. So if Stannis does happen to march south with a bunch of Northmen, he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna all just be able to bypass the Freys. That's the people that killed the Red people that you know did all that damage in the North. We have this another quote from Lady Dustin who kind of explains the situation. And Lord Wyman is not the only man who lost kin at your Red Wedding, Frey. Do you imagine Horsebane loves you any better? If you did not hold the Great John, he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them, as Lady Hornwood ate her fingers. Flints, Sirwins, Tallhearts, Slates. They all had men with the young wolf. So nearly, like, like we said, nearly every northern house has a blood debt with the phrase. So the twins, however, is an incredibly strong castle. Uh, no one's going to be able to take that. We're, uh, it's, it's, it's quite clear that the twins would, is a serious investment in terms of trying to take the castle. So it wouldn't be a simple matter if Stannis taking it. And this might all be kind of moot anyway, because if the White Walkers are around, Stannis isn't going to be able to get that far south, to, especially to march on King's Landing. Uh, we're thinking that his plans won't quite get, get that far along before he has to start fighting in the north, fighting the real battle. Trisha Sprankle asks, Red Wedding Northern style? Maybe is there going to be enough support from the small folk? That's an interesting question. Will Sansa, maybe there'll be some sort of setup there with the small folk rising and maybe taking out the Boltons from within? Interesting possibility. The There's... Red Wedding as in, no, as in Melisandre. <laughs> involved yeah way there no they're gonna be married before that it seems like the but it's also possible there's certainly been a second red wedding sort of foreshadowing in the in the books uh maybe from davin lannister's point of view not his literal point of view but that his it's his wedding where there, there's some people have foreshadowed a second red wedding maybe we're gonna get it here instead maybe the book the show will move that so anyway Running out of time, so let's go ahead and move on to our some questions and predictions and factoids that Watchers have pointed out. Where, where you want to be points out that Jamie's sword catch is a is a nod to Victorian's sword catch of young Sari. Can't believe I didn't catch that. I was really when I saw that I was like, oh my god, of course yeah. it is. That's so that's totally right on. That's a very good parallel. Another good job by the showrunners of sticking in a clever reference to the books. 
In this case, one that got right right past me that I really shouldn't have. I've listened to that chapter so many times, I can't believe I missed that. I don't know that it's an exact, that the showrunners planned it to be a parallel exact. It doesn't have to have been, but yeah, it's Yeah, cool. I think it's nice. I just don't know that it was necessarily like on purpose. I think there's so much stuff that there could be some crossover on accident easily. Definitely. Warzip suggests that Tyrion will eventually sleep with Melisandre to prove that a small man can indeed cast a very large shadow. <laughs> nice one, nice one. Archmaester Drew and Sophia Alarcon uh, mentioned that real-world obsidian can be non-black, too. It can be green or orange, even, which is neat. Uh, it is news to me. I knew it kind of was off-black sometimes, but I didn't know you could have gold or orange, rather. That's really neat. Uh, J.C. Wilder uh, asks, why did Robert give Lyanna a feather? Yoke boy, you have a, a thought on that? Yeah, I think you usually put a flower on a grave or a tomb, wouldn't you? But the, the showrunners might have wanted to avoid... Doing that with a flower, given that Liana, the Liana Rhaegar link, is largely via blue roses, so it might have left confu you know, an alley for confusion later on. However, I don't have any <laughs> idea why it's a feather. Yeah. I found an article on, I was really curious about that, and I thought about it for a while, and I found an article on Making Game of Thrones, which is like the official you know, production guide, diary or whatever. Uh, and I was like, yes, finally, an answer to this question. But no, there was no information at all on why he left the feather. I mean, like, did they hawk together? <laughs> did they? Did she like birds in particular? Was that just what was handy to Robert? He was like, I should leave something. Ah, oh, there's a feather up here. At winter. I'll take this down. What would it was it just because it would last like a, a flower? Maybe what you know would have decomposed over this time, and so they. What, they wanted to have something there that would, that would, that would still be there. I have no idea at yeah, all. Yeah, it's, it's just still a, kind of an open mystery, I suppose. It's a bit, bit weird. Yeah, I like uh, to think that they hawked together. So they had <laughs> some, some memory where they, where they dealt with birds in some way. Watching her, Vince Fregali asks, "Will Oliver get the blue bard treatment?" All I have to say to that is, yikes! I hope mm. not. That is, but it does seem very possible. The Olivar, of course, is the brothel keeper with Littlefinger's brothel keeper, who's been in the center of everything. The Blue Bard got tortured brutally to tell a story that wasn't true, uh, as part of Cersei's plot to help bring down the Tyrell. So that does seem possible. I, I hope that the show doesn't bother with that, though. We do not need more torture. No. Sir Pohi of the North wonders that if Tommen's incestuous birth is a problem for the Faith, won't they have the same problem with Danny, who was an incestuous target? Well, Tommen doesn't have dragons. And the Targaryens have always gotten away with that. It might be difficult with reestablishing themselves. And also Danny has to get over the fact that she's a woman and it's a patriarchal society and that will be held against her to some degree. But again, she has dragons, which means she can get over a whole lot of things that people will complain about. She says, hey, look, you really want to complain about that? Talk to Drogon about that. <laughs> uh, Baron Halstead asks, Karstarks, any parallels to the Karstark plots might happen? We have Alice, Cregan, and Arnolf. Will they appear? Is there any possibility for a similar condensed situation? Well, some other watchers have suggested a possible Sansa Tormund Sansa match. Giant's Bane, as we talked about Sansa ourselves. Giant's Bane. Torsa? Santor? <laughs> What's the ship name there? Um, hmm. But uh, watchner Travis Raker suggests that this, red, this kind of redhead power would be enough to destroy the others by itself. That is a lot of redhead power. Sansa and Tormund, those are very redheaded people. Uh, Abdul Romano has two good suggestions here. Well, he, he wants to know if little, he suggests that Littlefinger will tell Cersei about Sansa, but act like he was not involved to create a rift between the Boltons and Lannisters and also forcing Bolton to rely more on his alliance with the Vale. 
Very good suggestion. Obviously, we don't know if that's going to happen, but I really like that idea. I, I can like definitely that. see that happening. I like that, too. I, I still like my, my favorite idea is that he lies to her and tells her that he gave them a fake Sansa. Yeah, we brought that up last time. And that the time. Boltons are betraying him. That way he gets the Boltons under the bus, saves himself, and he, you know, he covers his ass. I think we can be pretty sure that Sansa, or that, that little finger, is going to lie to Cersei. Yeah, <laughs> some way. Or other. Uh, James Bichel wished Joffrey was alive. Only time ever. To see him go head-to-head with the Faith. It wouldn't go down like he did with Tommen. That is for damn sure. I agree with that. <laughs> now, Ostrich Stark predicts that Marin Trant will say mercy, and Arya will respond, not today. <laughs> I would love to see that. That would be perfect. So let's do our worry of the week or the week. We talked about Miranda and Fat Walda. Both of them are at risk for sure. Eamon, of course, maybe while John is at hard home. Mm-hmm. What else do you guys think? Uh, I was a little worried about Davos with yeah. that whole Shireen, Shireen protect me stuff. Yeah, I'm more worried about Shireen. I mean, I'm most worried about all of Marine. Grayscale <laughs> coming, yeah. Yeah, that's it's... a pretty big deal. Anybody else you're worried about? I, 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 I wouldn't say I'm worried about, about Marin, but... Yeah, Marin, yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. We're, we're looking forward to that one, possibly. Yeah. I Linda... guess Loris... Loris, yeah, he could end up, he could ask for a trial by combat, which would be interesting, with, not, unless, of course, he has to fight Sir Robert Strong, which could happen if Marin Trant dies first, and that spot opens for Robert Strong to be added to the Kingsguard. If not, then the Kingsguard situation will be done a different way. Maybe Loris' spot will open. <laughs> what about you, young Loris boy? Be the spot. Any worries of the week? Well, I think you've, you've covered them. I think, Shireen, that was largely from... From last week and a bit from this week. Uh, Fat Walder. She seems nice. <laughs> Just give her a break, you know. <laughs> did, did she have to tell tell Ramsay that she's, you know, got a... She's with child and it's going to be a boy. I don't like it. <laughs> really asking for it there, huh? <laughs> So let's go ahead and move on. We're going to do our credits here. But remember, after the credits, we're going to have just a few minutes of discussion of the trailer. We're not going to have a lot of time for that because we're running short on time. But we will get in a little of that. talking real quickly. You can tell. That's right. I always speed up when we're running short on time. So thanks to Matt. Thank you for being here. Uh, Radio Mm -hmm. Westeros, you guys should check it out if you haven't. We've been plugging you guys all year. If you haven't checked it out yet, what are you waiting for? Go ahead and go to RadioWesteros.com. Pick out your favorite character that they might have on their list. And if you if they haven't done an episode on your favorite character yet, well, just send them an email and tell them how much you'd love to hear your favorite <laughs> character get analyzed. We have reached our second Patreon milestone. So thank you to everyone who is helping us at www.patreon.com slash History of Westeros. Our Hand of the King is Lord Cash Craig, a.k.a. Baxis, on the History of Westeros forums. Our Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville. The South, East, and West are still undefended. We made it to two milestones with only one border defended. I don't know how we managed that. We have a Master of Coin by the name of Lord Robert Jacobs. Our Master of Whisterers is Lord James the Scholar. Grandmaster Etai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. The History of Westeros Night's Watch Lord Commander is George the Golden. Our Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate as the History of Westeros King's Justice. Lady Dyrlis of Castle Naki and Lord Nathan of the Fire Fort pro- provide lordly support and advice that pays off for us all. Now, to get your name on that list, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Uh, another important thing... I have been, I, I, I continuously review some of these plot lines, especially during the TV season, because there's so many parallels and so much to keep track of. I do that by listening to audiobooks, 
You can check out, if you've been wanting to check out Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire on audio, the best way to do that is through audible.com. Go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Audible trial link on the right. You can get 30-day free without paying anything. That includes one free download. Download Game of Thrones or Dance with Dragons or Feast for Crows since that's where we're at right now. A lot of these chapters we've talked about today, a lot of these quotes came from A Dance with Dragons, and the reason we were able to pick them out and get them in this episode is because we're just so aware of them, and we knew where to find them, and that comes from listening to the books, getting that really in your head. While you're doing chores or exercise or things that are maybe tedious, why not be listening to Game of Thrones while you're doing that? Treat yourself. And it's free, and it could provide you with a lot more entertainment over the years if you actually end up liking audio entertainment like that. Mm-hmm. So real quick, we got to talk about the trailer. So if you're not, if you don't want to hear about the trailer, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. But we get Arya walking towards a door. A quote by Jaken over a voiceover saying, "Is a girl ready to give up her identity?" Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is she? So we're <laughs> definitely going to see Arya next week. Uh, yes. It's hard to see where that plot line is going. It's still pretty early in the game with that plot line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see the Sand Snakes, of course, and Marcella and Tristane. We'll actually see some more of them, I suppose. Some get some actual insight on what Tristane's motivations are. Yeah, we see Marcella getting a flower from Tristane, so it does look like they have a real relationship, or at least well, Tristane is trying to yeah, establish it's, it's, that. Yeah, it's, it's the question is whether he's truly in love with her, or truly cares about her, or whether you know he's got he's part of any schemes. Yeah, probably still probably really likes her i think that's true we so we'll have to wait and see it's it, the cynical it's always it always pays to consider the cynical outlook maybe maybe tristane is is up to something it's entirely possible we also get a shot of olena so the queen of thorns is coming back that's exciting yeah. we get to see more dialogue with her and cersei most likely and maybe she'll be chatting with the high sparrow who is an intimidating no. figure that i doubt will intimidate her but no. this is not exactly a pushover we get we see we see Loras getting wrestled down in front of Tommen and Tommen is just like powerless to do anything about it. So that'll be that'll be interesting. We see Littlefinger accosted by Lancel and his men. That's very interesting. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with there. And then we see yeah, him. Well, Littlefinger's trying to do probably maybe go to his brothel or going to talk to the High Sparrow about his brothel or something. And yeah. Stop him. Very. Uh, <clears throat> we'll yeah. have to see where that goes. Very very um, a lot of possibilities there. We also see Cersei and Littlefinger having several conversations. She's kind of asking him about the, who, where the veil stands, and he <laughs> tells her that the veil is ready to fight for her, which uh-huh. I don't think any of us believe that for a second. Yeah, then we have uh, the Boltons in the snow, and it sure looks like a wedding to me. We have Ramsay and Roos dressed very nicely in front of a weirwood with a crowd, like a bit of a crowd. And then we have Theon dressed better, dressed more nicely. Not great. Uh, and so, I mean, I think it's just, obviously a wedding just based on Theon dressed nicely that's got to be it yeah so that that fulfills the prediction we made earlier this episode based on the, the necessity of the marriage happening soon that seems to be confirmed by the trailer and we do not see any shots of Essos besides Arya and we do not see Stannis so it's possible the next episode won't have any Daenerys or any Jorah or Tyrion or mm. any just we'll have another Bolton focused episode. We'll probably have a lot of King's Landing since we didn't have it this episode. Yeah. So anyway, all right, that's our show for today. 
Um, Yoke Boy, why don't you say goodbye and make another little quick plug for Radio Westeros since I blew through that so quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, I really enjoyed it today and I hope you're watching us did too. Yeah, c come and check me out on my, my own podcast with uh, Lady Gwyn and that's at RadioWesteros.com. Really hope some of you guys come and check it out. Right on. Again, we plugged it before, but the Barristan episode is a, is a great one and it's, of course, very timely. And, of course, you guys also have episodes on Brienne and Melisandre, all of sorts of characters that are becoming really important right now. So good time to brush up on your character knowledge. <laughs> and that is all we have for this time. We will see you all next week for the beginning of the second half of the season. We expect a lot of excitement to build and things to be moving at a quicker pace, more action perhaps, more resolution, more likelihood of deaths. So keep sending us your feedback. Send us questions, predictions, worries of the week. Call us names. Good names, bad names. Nah, don't do that. Call us good names. Don't call us bad names. We don't like that. Call us funny names. We'll take that. Till then, though, see you all next time, and Valar Morgulis. <laughs>